This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you need to know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's secondmissionfoundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles and Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. Check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. My guest this week was Marine combat artist, former Marine combat artist, Mike Fay. Uh, Mike, you know, started his career as a Marine infantryman, became a Marine helicopter mechanic, then ended up in the Marine combat arts program where he deployed multiple times uh, in the GWAT. And at a relatively old age, especially in the Marine Corps, I think he started going into the GWAT like 48. Um, So... He's. I think it's safe to say he's a bit of a legend in the Marine Corps combat art community, um, and deservedly so. He was referred to me as like a great interview. They're like, "Oh man, you got to talk to Mike Fay. Mike Fay's a super interesting guy. You'll love talking to him." That couldn't have been more spot on. Um, and I should have known better. So I, I, sh- I should have known better than to plan things how I did. So what happened is I tried to talk to do an interview with Mike, which we've always done on Zoom. Because it's 2023 and uh, or 2021, 2022, and then 2023, and it just never uh, and we didn't have the equipment or really were set up to do in person interviews. And Mike's reception where he is in Pennsylvania was really bad, so the signal was really bad. So when we were trying to do the interview, it started off it was great. When I could hear him, I was like, oh man, this guy's gonna be a blast to talk to, and. Uh, the signal just kept crapping out on us. So I was like, okay, I uh, talked to Charlie faint and Charlie has a new swank in person podcast set up. And I was like, all right, Charlie, it's like, can we train me up on this? I'm going to take it down and talk to Mike and, um, you know, and do this live. So I drove down to, to his place. It's about three and a half hour drive each way. And, uh, man, was it worth it? Um, just, he and his wife, Janice, just nicest freaking people. And, you know, both of them veterans, um, both of them combat veterans. I mean, it's uh, it's a hell of a household, and they just couldn't have been more gracious in uh, talking to me. I, of course, made the tactical mistake, though, of scheduling it the same day that I had to teach a class back in New York that night. <clears throat> so I had to haul ass to get down there in time, try to pack uh, in the interview, and then 
get back. And that was a true disservice to them because I could have spent way more time there talking to Mike. This interview needed to be at least double what it was. And so what the plan is right now, <clears throat> I'm going to talk to Mike and we're going to try to get back down there and, and talk to him uh, again. <clears throat> it, he deserves it. it. You'll you'll hear in the episode, like, we leave a lot of meat on the bone. Like, there's a lot of stuff we have to still talk about. And, uh, yeah, I'm interested to do it. So we will figure that piece out. But what you will get today is a first dive into the many tangents, the many facets, the many interests, uh, and the many stories of Mike Fay. And man, there's a lot more to come. Anyway, uh, I think that's all I have to say about that. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Mike Fay's Profile in Havoc. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you very much, Chris. Appreciate the uh, chance to uh, talk. Yeah, I mean, this is so full disclosure. This is the first time I've done an in-person podcast. You're it, and it's because of our our aborted interview before. Because I was like, we got off on such a great start, and I could not hear anything you were saying. It was driving me nuts. I was like, I'll go to Pennsylvania. I got to go see him because I don't want to let that die. Yeah, Chris. And, and now that you're here and you see where I live, you understand that uh, we're. Uh, we're out here. Well, and it's funny because you and I, what we liked, I think, or what I was enjoying when we were talking was because we were talking about Pennsylvania. Sure. And it's like now driving out here, I want to talk even more about Pennsylvania and its effect on you because I'm like, it's gorgeous where you live. And we were talking about you know the area and the aquifers mm-hmm. and the Appalachian Trail being nearby and all. Um, are you from this part of Pennsylvania originally? Yes and no. Okay. The 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 no part is I grew up in Allentown, which is all the way, uh, you know, the Billy Joel song, um, literally, um, over in uh, Lehigh County. Okay. Um, almost to the, almost to Jersey. Okay. Um, so Allentown is sort of uh, it's just the northern burbs of Philadelphia, for you know, every, okay. people commute okay. to yeah. Philly down um, the Pennsylvania State Turnpike, Northeast Extension. So um, I grew up in Allentown. And, uh, but my mom's family, although my mom did not grow up in Lebanon, my mom's mother and father were from here, from Lebanon County. Okay. My grandmother, uh, who I called Nana, was a, uh, uh, a Moravian. I don't know what that is. Uh, Moravians are, um, you know, one of those uh, Anabaptist sects here. Mm. We have Mennonites. Okay. We have, we have uh, obviously, the Amish. Sure. Um, there's another group called Schwenkfelders. Okay. There are, Do you have Bruderhof down here? Are there Bruderhof? No, I've never heard of Bruderhof. Okay, all right. Um, we also have um, uh, Dunkard Brethren. So wow. all these Anabaptists, and all Anabaptists mm. means you only get baptized as a consenting adult. They don't baptize babies or children. That's the only common denominator between them all. Yes, they're Anabaptists. And, and okay. a lot of them originated from, uh, actually from Switzerland and not from Germany. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, okay. Um, well, do they job. all do they all have the same aesthetic though? Do they all do no no the, no, okay. no no right. no 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 they're all there's varying degrees okay and when you live here you realize it's a it's a lot of subtlety no cookie cutter stereotypes about mm-hmm. any of them mm-hmm. you know the Amish are the Amish gotcha 
Gotcha. Mennonites have shades of gray. You have what they call old order Mennonites, which are, other than the color of their buggies, are virtually indistinguishable from the Amish. Okay. Then you have modern Mennonites. They have like, a, I think it's 10,000 villages. There's a there's a town near here called Ephrata where they have their headquarters. Um, the people we bought the house from here in Pennsylvania were Mennonite. You would never know. Wow. Okay. In the middle of the Mennonites, which you see mostly <clears throat> here, you have what they call black bumper Mennonites. So what does that mean? It means the men wear pork pie hats. Uh-huh. Uh, they almost universally wear plaid shirts buttoned all the way up. Okay. The women uh, go to like uh, the different uh, fabric stores like Joann's and just buy whatever's on sale. And probably in, in New York City, they would be considered fashionistas because you got plaids with prints and uh, everything going on. Um, like the Amish, they do wear sort of a little, the women wear a little cap over their hair. Okay. It's round. The Amish caps that, the, that they wear are heart-shaped. But the black reason they're called black bumper Mennonite is because all their cars have black bumpers. They always have. So they're not ostentatious. Uh, <laughs> do they all – this is completely yeah. – um, it might be a misperception. Is there a degree of pacifism that runs through the Anabaptist community? That's well, always yes. my perception. All, all, all the Anabaptists, including the Moravians, mm -hmm. are, are pacifists. So that was sort of the mindset that you were – No, no. Oh, I mean, you're around it a little, oh. at least a little bit, right? No, not really. Okay, All not right. really. Okay, uh, my my my. As, as an aside, my grandmother, who I called Nana, uh, her maiden name was Felty, which you're not going to find anywhere else in America, but you're going to find it here in Lebanon County. Um, she at 16 years old ran off and joined uh, Ziegfeld Follies, and in a, in a in an acrobatic bicycle act. She was gone five years. Nobody knew where she was. She felt guilty because she was very close to her mother. She didn't get along with her father. She came home at 21 with beautiful clothes and a nice big, big Sheltie dog. It was almost like her, what they call rumspringer. Yeah. Her wilding. Yeah. She never got a driver's license. <clears throat> she met my grandfather, had children, and that was it. She never, wow. whatever. Um, but as far as like political pacifism, no, not at all. I mean, I was raised Lutheran. Okay. My, right. my grandfather, who I call Pop, uh, was, was, was Lutheran. So we, we you know, basically okay. Catholic-like. So who were you as a kid then? What was your interest? What was your driving inspiration? What, what got you up in the morning as a kid? I mean, besides having to go to school, were you, was it sports? Was it the environment? Was it the nature around you? What, what, who it was were art. You? It was drawing. Was it? Oh, really? yeah, yeah. I mean, I was... <clears throat> I mean, as my parents said, you know, as far back as I remember, I'm drawn. Wow. And uh, and military theme stuff. Always military theme right. stuff. In fact, my uh, my master's thesis, which in 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 a large part was based on myself, although it was uh, which uh, it's a novel. I'm still writing a fictional character. Wow. Uh, was called the Boy Who Drew Soldiers. Now I got that from there's an old Japanese tale called the Boy Who Drew Cats. Um, so I was called. So I decided to do the Boy Who Drew Soldiers. So. Um, I can remember, uh, you know, being a, a baby boomer, you started seeing like Life magazine articles about World War II. You had Walter Cronkite, you yeah, know, his television show, yeah. the 20th century, right. Walter Cronkite, <laughs> right, right. You know, and I watched that, and my dad 
had served in World War II as a Marine, Guadalcanal, New Britain campaign. Oh, really? Had been wounded. Um, he was involved in the initial <clears throat> atomic bomb tests. I still have his ID card from that, uh, Operation Crossroads. Um, he died from a, a type of cancer that was directly linked to being involved with the, the atomic bomb tests. Um, his oldest brother, my Uncle Frank, uh, was in the Army Rangers and got the Silver Star. Um, you know, my, my mom's sister's husband was very close to my Uncle Chuck. He was in the Army, fought in the Hurtigan Forest, was, uh, wrote a whole book about being wounded, and it, wow. it was on point with two other guys, thought they were both dead. They got you know, hit with machine gun fire. So this wasn't like so, an academic or like boyhood new, fascination. This was coming from family connection. Well, yeah. You know, how do you explain it? I'm, I'm a bit of a new agey guy, but um, and all the books, the, the sort of the World War II art books started coming out because uh, in, in yeah. World War II you had um, all the branches had active quote unquote uh, combat art programs. The British t and the French, etc. They tried. They tend to call it war art or war artists. Here in the U.S., they chose the term. Combat artists, you know, combat photographers, combat right. journalists, right. things like that, and uh, and historical books. So, you know, I can tell you the the first painting artwork that I tried to copy over and over and over again was uh, by a gentleman named um, I'm going to draw a blank here. Was N. C. Wyeth's uh, mentor? It'll come, mm. but it's uh, it's the British soldiers attacking up Breed's Hill, and uh, the lines of soldiers, their backpacks, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I just was fascinated with, you know. And then, I, you know, I tried to copy, like, uh, 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 Prince Valiant, you know, the sort of the, um, you know, the stuff from, uh, you know, medieval times. Yeah. And... Uh, was it artistic for you, or was it the story itself? Was there a Oh, sense I think of all of the above. Okay. I, I mean, at all that right. age, you have no idea. I'm talking, yeah. I'm talking four and five years old. I was wow. just filling up paper after paper. And it was... It was Copying pictures. Well, I'm trying to. Okay. Trying yeah, to. yeah. And um, uh, Howard Pyle, that's what it was. It did, oh, the yeah. Howard Pyle, yeah. the golden age of illustrators. Um, and, and I think that's an interesting question because I, I eventually got my master's in illustration. And people say, you know, what is the difference between illustration and fine art? Well, illustration, two things. One, it's always tied with story. doesn't mean fine art isn't. It's always tied to story, to a narrative, yeah. narrative content. Um, the other thing about illustration that's less obvious is illustrators are always concerned about what will look like reproduced. Fine artists are interested in what it will look like hanging on a wall or in a museum. Illustrators know the process. So whatever mistakes, like illustrate, like I, and I know I got enough attention, but uh, one of the things that I got to do was have an exhibit at the uh, uh, Farnsworth Museum and Wyeth Center mm. in Rock, Rock, uh, Rock, Rockport, Maine. Okay. Yeah, Rockland, Maine. And uh, I think it's Rockland, Maine. And uh, I got to go behind the scenes to see the archives, particularly they have N.C. Wyeth and Howard Pyle stuff, big wow. collection, and get to see um, all the use of whiteout or, or white gouache to, to take out areas they didn't like. Really? So seeing them in person... They were all, because, you know, the art director would say, oh, I don't like, take this out. So they would just put white gouache over it and put some. So they're, but wow. in, in their photo, whatever the process, the, photo, the lithography <clears throat> they had back then, all those defects would disappear. Gone. So that was a big revelation. 
That's interesting. But uh, I will tell you that when I was five years old, my um, had a very good friend, and she's still alive. Her name was Mitzi Dennett, and she was an elementary art school teacher in a nearby school district, Parkland School District. And I guess my parents had shown them my artwork, what I was doing. Mm. And Mitzi told them, it's like, he's got it. He's He's got that thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will tell you, my parents were not supportive of that. God bless them. Really? Oh, no. This is this is what do they what do they want you to be? Uh, anything but an artist, <laughs> because of the money and the supportability. Well, you know, this is the generation that you know <clears throat> was uh, you know saw the movies with the uh, you know uh, about you know uh, you know Vincent Van Gogh uh, cutting off his ear and uh, right. uh, Toulouse Lautrec, you know, uh, you know, losing his mind on absinthe and right. dying. So they right. really, to them, art because they didn't really grow up with art. Like we did. What, what so were they? they what, did, what did they do? What did your parents do? What was, was their background? My mom was a school nurse. Okay. Um, she was also an operating room nurse, but she ended up retiring as a school nurse. My dad was, my brother Doug and I, I have three, two, two brothers, but my, my brother Doug and I are pretty close. We're only about two and a half years apart. And I, I think they, they really weren't talking about PTSD and, and, and stuff. Yeah. So my father was, I, I know every kid might say this, was, was a genius. His memory was incredible. He had so uh-huh. many friends. He was the life of the party. Hmm. And he was a salesman. He was never, he did two years of college, met my mom, mm. fell in love, and that was that. So he never finished college. Very well read. In fact, I still, he used to subscribe to Time Life books used to send out mm, like a couple yeah. books a month and he, he, so he was extremely well read um, he was uh, uh, the youngest son of an Irish Catholic family mm. the plan was for him to be a priest and uh, he was sent to the Jesuit high school and as my father said to me he said you know Mike there was a redheaded girl down the street and I, <laughs> and I knew I would never be able to be a priest so when he graduated yeah. high school he in, at 18 he ran off and <clears throat> joined the Civilian Conservation Corps mm. Mm-hmm. Out of Boston. He, so he was just a city kid. Yeah. Irish Catholic city kid. And uh, from, from a legacy of his father's, his grandfather's uncles were all laborers. Because as my dad said, the Boston papers at the end of every one ad said N-I-N-A. No Irish or you know what's apply. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. It was until after World War II. Wow. He goes, remember, we Irish were the you know what's a year. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And... Uh, so and then he got he got recruited very shortly after out of a civilian conservation corps camp in Montana to go in the Marine Corps. He said there were a couple hundred young men there working, and the Marine recruiters came up from Denver, wow. and they basically said, uh, "You and you, we're you know." So when you're an artist as a kid, I get that he wouldn't necessarily have the framework to understand that. Did you? How did you interpret? Their lack of enthusiasm for your art career. Well, they were they were they were uh, depression era kids. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it was like they're thinking about viability. Yeah, they're right? thinking yeah. economics. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and, and probably you know that uh, you know that the artistic sort of thing was uh, was a path to. Yeah, you know. yeah. Well, Unbeknownst did- to me, they're probably like we know jazz musicians all smoke marijuana. <laughs> right, you know? right, right. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and uh, it, you know, it's they they just did not want that path. I mean. But what did that do to you? Did it inhibit you? Did it make you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's. I think it's something. Even I mean, I've been in therapy 
for any number of, you know, mm. after nine combat tours, you're going to you know, have some issues. <laughs> the brain sort of tends to want to rewire itself. And once it does, it doesn't want to go back. Right. Um, and so, um, I mean, I can tell you, even at 70, uh, which I'm almost 70, that... Um, Don't look it. Well, my, my mom just turned 94. Wow. And her sister's going to turn 98. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, so there's wow. there's good genes as long as I take care of myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that... I mean, it's, and I'm not the only one. I mean, many artists deal with that, like, am I good enough? Because if there's one thing I heard from my first wife and from uh, my parents was, ah, do you really think you're that good? And this is after your parents had heard. Oh, yeah. Hey, he's got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They still didn't believe well, it. it would be like the school psychologist as a friend and says, oh, by the way, I think your son's gay. You know. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, 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 no. That's not our plan. You know, we want grandchildren. Wow. I mean, seriously, yeah. it's like, yeah. you know, I mean, I think they would have been happier if I said I wanted to be a priest. Oh, okay, that's there's that's job security in that. You'll you'll be okay. Yeah. So what did that make you do when they when they kind of dampened your enthusiasm for art? Did you just do it on the down low or yes, did you start did. to shift your targets? I, I, I did. And I like I said, I um I would do I where can I go with this? <laughs> I uh well, for instance, I wanted to go to art school out of out of college, out of high school, mm. and I was my, my I was my class salutatorian, you know, and uh, I was the art club president, and I was the art kid. I mean, my, my art teacher's still alive. I don't know how many awards I got because she would just let me. I mean, I still have bad dreams about my senior year in high school that I got tests and paper to write because I've just spent the whole year in the art room doing art and, and blown everything off. And now it's literally the night before graduation and I got term papers and math tests to take. Wow. And I have no idea. I haven't studied German for, you know, and I got all this over my head. And I, I sometimes, I mean, it hasn't happened lately, but there were times I woke up and I have to l virtually say out loud to myself, Mike, you have a master's degree. <laughs> no one is coming for it. Right. Um, but, you know, and you still made salutarian. Huh? So you still did really well in school despite oh, yeah. that. Yeah. And they, well, the, uh, the art teacher would just take the stuff. It would disappear from my little cubby or whatever. And, and, wow. and she would submit it and got to get Hallmark card awards and different stuff. And, um, but you know, it's, and I wanted to go to art school and my parents said, if you go to art school, we will not pay for it. Okay. Cause I'm looking at, you know, schools in New York city. Cause sure. I'm in Allentown. So I'm just like, you know, hour down, yeah. Yeah. hour away from uh, Holland tunnel or yeah, essentially. So, you know, I'm looking at, uh, you know, <clears throat> art students league or, uh, Pratt, yeah, you know, or, mm. or 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 Janice went FIT. I mean, there's all kinds of art schools. Uh, they're not cheap. No, they're not. No, even back yeah. then, like I look at look at you know the the, the Minneapolis mm. College of Art and Design, yeah, Savannah College of Art and Design. You know, they were sort of like the Ivy League of art schools. They were yeah. not cheap. Yeah, Philadelphia College of Art. Holy crap. Yeah. Um, they were like, we will not pay for it. So I I went off to college as a forestry major. Wow. Because I thought, well, I'll live in the woods at the top of some tower somewhere, and uh, and then I'll, you know, I, I can do art or something. You know, I'll figure it out. Do, was nature a big part of your art, even from the early ages, or was it always military themed and it was subject matter both. tied to story? Okay. Both. Both. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a. Well, we get into a big discussion about different types of artwork. I am, I am not a realist. I'm a naturalist. There's, there's a, there's a, a slight difference. What's the difference? Well. A realist, probably the best example of realist would be like um, uh, photorealism. Okay. You, you really want to mimic exactly what you see in front of you. Okay. 
a naturalist takes what's in front of them and interprets it. So yes. they might use impressionism, uh, but they don't try to copy it per se. Yep. And that's called a naturalist okay. as opposed to a realist. I mean, my artwork is still realistic. Right, right. But it's, it's tried to inform with more emotional content in terms of the, the shaping of, of objects, the color choices. Well, and it's more individual too, right? Well, absolutely. Yeah. Well, not, you know, so, um, so I was always fascinated by both landscape painting mm. and figurative painting. And, uh, and, I, and, and when I was in, when I was in elementary school and then also in high school, um, I would get, uh, scholarships. There was a local art school in Allentown, um, uh, that was run by a, a, a semi-major Pennsylvania impressionist named Walter Baum. And it was called the Baum Art School, B-A-U-M. And Baum was, uh, although he lived in Allentown, worked in Allentown, he was part of the, uh, the, uh, uh, the Pennsylvania Impressionist School out of New Hope, Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, the big museum for that is the, uh, uh, the Michener Museum in Doylestown. Okay. And I actually had a one-man show at the Michener Museum in Doylestown because when I approached him with my art and I said, you know, I'm a, I was a student. I mean, I had Walter Baum as a kid. They were like... Well, we like that connection. Yeah, um, and so the, you know, and and Walter was Mr. Baum was a he was a uh, he was not a figurative painter. He was strictly landscape. That was his thing, landscape. You know, Pennsylvania. Yep. Highways and byways, just yep. like what I see out here that resonates with me here in in, in Lebanon yeah. County and Lancaster County. Yeah. So it was both, but um, uh, but can I just say Go you were inspired? I mean, this is what we were talking about in our aborted interview. Right. I mean, you're a very partisan Pennsylvanian when it comes to your inspiration, it seems like. Like, it would make sense that the bomb school would, would resonate with you, that the landscapes that turned sure. him on are the same ones that are turning you on, right? Well, and also, I mean, you know, I mean, my father, back to a little bit my dad, he, he essentially raised us Unitarians. Mm -hmm. He was a fallen Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were his middle brother was a devout path, my uncle Gene, and we were stopped at the cathedral doors by him when we were going to go attend my father's mother, my Gamsey's funeral, because my uncle Eugene said, "You've been excommunicated, Dick. You can't come into this church with your family." And my dad said, "Had some." I remember I'm like nine years old, and my dad's like, "Uh, how would you like me to freaking knock all your teeth out right now?" You know. Uh, wow. So. Wow. Uh, I think probably the only reason I can only theorize that we were not raised Unitarian, because there was a Unitarian fellowship in Bethlehem right nearby, was that the Unitarians were the Brahmins, the, the, <laughs> the Boston Brahmins who kept the Irish in their place. You know, you know. Yeah. Uh, so there's a little bit of class so I think, but stuff I, that but goes but into I that. Was, yeah. I, I was conscious of these things. And, you know, Pennsylvania being the Keystone State, you really – in, in growing up in Allentown and having relatives out here in Lebanon County, um, you know, I was on the cusp of a lot of stuff. So what's it, one of the many things that's, that's striking me now hearing all this, you have an immense amount of historical, socio, political, cultural knowledge, background stories, yeah. data points, et cetera. Like you've referenced and gone on tangents on a bunch of different things. You should say that I, when my wife, my wife was sitting here, she'd be rolling her eyes because <laughs> she's utterly black and white thinking, like get to the point. Do you like this painting, Michael? Well, the reason, no, no, no. Yes or no. No, but it's, it's great. But it, what it makes me think is then when it comes to your art, because your art, 
one could say, well, look, you're painting things that are, as you said, natural, you know, that you're, you're, it's not, um, you're not doing abstract, you know, it's, it's, so it makes me wonder where does that come out in your work? Where does this love of so many different subjects, appreciation of so many different subjects, do you find that when you're painting a landscape, there is something to it where you're like, look, this is my, this is where I can access my love of Pennsylvania or my love of my appreciation of the fact that we weren't raised in inner city Boston. We were raised out here. Like, how does that leak out? Because I have a hard time thinking that somebody that's that interested in so many different subjects would utterly divorce it from your work. So I know that has to have some outlet, doesn't it? Well, Chris, if you were writing my biography, you you, you probably would, would be able to do that. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. when you're, I mean, it's, you know, how do you, you know, I mean, I, I know I, you, you might you not have consciously yourself, thought but it. I, sure. I mean, the way that I'm talking to you now, I uh, I have received both accolades and criticism. Yeah. You know, because it, it can come across as, wow, this is really interesting, or boy, this person's really friggin' full of themselves. Because I'm I'm Irish, huh. and let me, let me just say one of the things yeah. about being Irish is uh, in fact there's a there's a Irish female rock group. I'm trying to think what they're called, but uh, uh, they they come to the Celtic Festival here. Um, they're from Northern Ireland, but one time the one of the girls goes, she goes, there's only one thing the Irish are afraid of, silence. Because <laughs> her and her sister, one of, there's four sisters, but two of them are always bantering. She says, I'm so sorry, but there's only one thing the Irish are afraid of. That's silence. But, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I got exposed to, it, I went back to Penn State, and I did get my degree in art ed, and I, t- I took a philosophy of aesthetics class, which was like, a professor Sagawa, little little gay Japanese guy, unbelievable mm. guy. And one thing I got exposed to was Jung, mm. who's mm-hmm. more than a psychologist, the whole archetypical thing. And one of the things Jung talked about was he called the tension of opposites, mm. which he called the yep. diastole, D-I-A-S-T-O-L-E. And the he said, as long as you stay in the tension of opposites, you, 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 you will tend to move towards what he called individuation. Hmm. You know, so you to be your own person, have your mm. own mm-hmm. sort of view of the world. The opposite of that, he called the retrogressive restoration of the persona. That means when you sort of say, you know what, I was really good, successful at being. You know, I was a hippie. I was an old. I was a hippie. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I had six and a half fist ponytail. My mom's friends wanted to have me cut it off and. You know, back in the late 60s, early 70s, women would have what they called a fall, like a fake ponytail they pin into their hair. You know, so I had this glorious head of black, thick hair. And they're like, Michael, your hair is so beautiful. I'll pay you for that to make a fall. <laughs> um, but I think when I think about myself, um, it's the tension of opposites. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And so... You know, I grew up with a father who was extremely intelligent and no college degree and had no interest other than to take us on hikes in nature, mm. to take us to the Philadelphia Art Museum all the time, to 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 do all that sort of stuff. And and you know, he I mean he's the guy that exposed me to, you know, the, the Lord of the Rings books. He goes, You need to read these, you know, and things like that. Yet a guy who, you know, when he when he passed away, he was just a, a manager of a small hardware store. You know? And a, a gentleman who uh, who could sing like an Irish tenor. I mean, 
as a kid going to basketball, I had a, my middle brother was a star basketball player, big man on campus in high mm-hmm. school. I still think he has the state record for rebounds in a championship game. And my dad would stand there and be belting out the national anthem. Today, it would be on a YouTube video and it would go viral. Because mm-hmm. people would, everyone would literally stop and look and he would be sweating and belting out the Star Spangled Banner like, oh my God. And of course, being a hippie at the time, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. Don't look, why stop? <laughs> um, so... Do you, do you feel he was un, he had unrequited talent that his talent? Oh yes, oh not, absolutely. Yeah. But his his attitude always was he he would say, uh, and it wasn't until years later I read it and I found out what it meant. He always said, "I've been to Kansas City twice and seen the elephant." You know what that is? No, that's a Civil War slang for being wounded. Been to Kansas City and I've seen the elephant. That was the Civil War slang for I was wounded in combat. Okay. So he was wounded on Guadalcanal and then really messed up on New Britain. Okay. He was just glad to be alive because he was in the regular Marine Corps when the war started. And because of his Jesuit education, mm-hmm. knowing some Latin and some French and mm-hmm. could, you know, could quote Marcus Aurelius, mm-hmm. um, they made him an officer. Wow. Because, you know, the Marine Corps went from virtually having a little bit less yeah. than one division yeah. to having six divisions. So all the USMC guys we're all made officers and sergeant majors and you know, you could be the biggest shite bird. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, you're going to be a sergeant major yeah. because this new battalion needs guys that were, you know, have been in at least a little bit when the war started. And so my dad was very conscious of the fact that of the 240 guys he went overseas with, with uh, golf company, second battalion, seventh Marines at the end of the war, as far as I knew, 12 were still alive. Wow. You know, cause of the attrition. Wow. You know, so he was just glad to meet somebody, fall in love, and have kids, have a job, not be having the life that his father, grandfathers, uncles all had as laborers. I mean, I've, I've done genealogy research, yeah. and I can find the, the, the censuses, and they're all listed laborers. That's it. Do you so, think that's why he also wanted to expose you to art? at a young age and take and take you into the museums and, and have you read literature that he was like, we've got, I've gotten to this point. You got to move the can, kick the can even I, further. I, I don't, I never got to ask him that he died rather young uh, from cancer. So, hmm. um, yeah, and these are, those are great questions. I mean, you know, yeah, right. if I could, I would, right. Right, you know, right. Or I say, you know, why did you just not, you know, but he just didn't have that fire in his gut. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because hit to him it was all gravy. It's like yeah, it's all yeah. gravy. It's yeah. like I got a house, I got a wife, I got three kids, I got income. You know, it's like I, I'm I'm good. I'm I'm good. Yeah, you know, compared to generations before me, pff, I'm in high cotton, baby. So, what propelled you into the Marines as a hippie, as going to college? Alcohol. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, in all in all yeah. honesty, I all right. uh, I worked at a summer camp in the Poconos. For seven summers. Okay. As a cook. Started off as a kitchen boy. Two summers as a kitchen boy. Third summer, they made me a third cook. I sliced a lot of onions and lettuce and tomatoes and cold cuts and mixed up a lot of pancake batter. Um, and then I eventually became a cook at okay. a very young age. Um, at 17 years old, the summer after my senior year of high school, I was like, had my own kitchen. I had yet to even turn 18. Did you like it? I loved it. Okay. Well, I met a young lady. Uh-huh. 
Her name will be on my lips on my deathbed. All right? Um, and we went together for about three years. We were engaged. And uh, the better the college I got into, because I was at Penn State, changed my major to art. From forestry? Oh, yeah. Okay. Because I like, what am I doing forestry? Yeah, even right. My, even my, my, my uh, advisor was like, what are you doing in forestry? And Penn State at that time was so inexpensive. I said, you know, let me major in art, you know. And your parents would still pay for it? No, I ended up paying for it. Okay. You know, my parents would pay one dime for my education. Okay. Well, Penn State in 1971, the entire year, cost you $1,845. Even with inflation. Yeah, what is that with inflation? I was thinking. Not, it still is not. It was like I could pay for it with my summer job money. Wow. And have a part-time job during the wow. year. Wow, okay. You know, All right. And, and it was virtually no problem. And take out a little student. So it was really just a matter of appeasing your parents and saying, even though I'm paying for it, right. I'll do forestry. And then at a certain point, okay, enough with the forestry. Well, I had to come up with At that time, I was like, you know, what am I going to do? So. Okay. And they were like, okay. You know. <laughs> um, and then I, uh, I transferred to the Philadelphia College of Art. And then, because I finally said, you know, I got to get serious about this. Um, and then I transferred. I had a professor at the Philadelphia College of Art. I wish, wish I could remember his name. He was an African-American gentleman who said, you don't belong here. You belong at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. Now, today, it's called the University of the Arts. Okay. Because back then, you could have, you would have your uh, studio classes at the Philadelphia College of Art. University of Pennsylvania professors would come down and do your academic classes. Oh, wow. And maybe you might have a studio class later on as a senior down at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. So this professor of mine said, because I was doing a lot of, I was doing a lot of drinking, believe me, heavy. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but I was producing a lot of art in back in my apartment. So one of my professors came by one day and he was like, wow, he goes, you don't, you, you don't belong at Philadelphia College of Art. You belong at the Pennsylvania Academy. So I got into the Pennsylvania Academy like mid-semester. I went from being a freshman to being a last term sophomore because the dean said, oh my gosh, mm. you're, um, and I barely went to a class because I'm Irish. I have the Irish flu. Gotcha. All right? Yep. And the lovely young lady uh, decided that perhaps I was a dead end. And so we split, sort of had a friends with benefit thing over the summer. And then finally, uh, you know, talk about deathbed remembering. And finally, um, uh, in the fall of 74, she didn't show up for a rendezvous, and she wrote me a letter, and she said, Michael, at the end of it, she, and she let her detailed, like, you know, you have so much potential, and you're just not doing a thing with it. You know, you just, wow. you know, whatever. Because I'm now I'm out of college, and I'm working as a cook in a restaurant, which means free booze. That was back in the day when cooks mm. were in the back smoking cigarettes. Yeah, 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 sweating right. Sweating into your food. Right, and, uh, right. And at about 8 o'clock, the chef would start having beers to right. deliver from the bar, you know. Oh, wait, you're Sorry, I'm just going to make one note. You could drive my producer nuts because he's going to edit that sound out. No, you're good. Right, so, yeah. Um, yeah, I can see my, <laughs> and so, um, so she wrote me a letter, and you know, and, and it really changed everything because she was just very upfront. And she ended the letter by saying, "Michael, I will always love you. I just can't face it. I think I'll just marry some rich older guy." She said that in the letter, yeah. And she did marry two rich older guys. One was a lawyer. One was a doctor. And at first, I was like, what the heck? But it really ate at me. Yeah. So now I'm just drinking nonstop. And finally, I'm, it's in like May of 1975. I'm in this restaurant. I'm the head cook. I wouldn't call myself a chef. I was working off mm -hmm. somebody else's recipes. 
in Allentown called the King George Inn. And this is, uh, you know, this is the era of what's your sign, Batgammon. Right, right, and, right. Uh, thank God you're, I'm a country boy, you know, and, and uh, at bars. And uh, and so, you know, I basically drank for free after work. Yeah, you know, and I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 my drug of choice was triple rum and Cokes. That's where it's like rum, and you sort of take the cap from the Coke bottle and wave it over the top. <laughs> and, uh, and my capacity for drinking was, from the first time I ever got drunk, was legendary. Yeah. In high school. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wasn't even a pot smoker. I go to parties like smoke all the pot you want, that leaves more for me in the beer. You know, or sangria, whatever, you know. So um Gerald Ford came on the television and said, The US Marines have taken back the SS Mayaguez. Now I had almost enlisted twice and my dad talked me out of it. Really? Yeah. Okay. Because I'm still living at home. You know, I'm talking, you know, failure to launch here. When did you first try to enlist? Well, it was probably right after with the girl. Okay. So 75-ish. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Vietnam is over now. Well, it had just ended. Because May 75, Vietnam oh, yeah. ends, right? Yeah. My, yeah. my platoon, we graduated in boot camp. We were the first uh, platoons that didn't get the Firewatch ribbon. Everybody before us, like, wow. graduated the Firewatch ribbon and a shooting yep. badge. Yeah. And we were like, oh, no ribbon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, and but then- Wait, sorry. Before, I just want to drill on this. Yeah. When you had tried to enlist before, it had all been post- this breakup. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, it was very right. dramatic. You know, I'm Irish. I'm artist. Yeah. You know, I'm all the things my parents were afraid of. Seriously. I'm <laughs> right. all the things my parents right. were afraid of. He's drunk. He's working in a kitchen. He's mooning over this girl. Oh my God. And, um, and doing nothing with his life. And right. I'm sure because I was in my high school class, Sally Thorne. I can show you my yearbook. There's a picture of the, you know, the Val Victorian here and a picture of me, you know, <laughs> next to him you know we spoke at our high school graduations and uh um uh so where am i going with this so um so when you're about to so now so you're finally and, and doing no, it. To, and yeah. to show you the drama it's like yeah. i actually looked into enlisting in the french foreign legion because they had a recruiting of course in new york this is pre-internet and everything yep. else. and I, I was honest with myself i said you know what there's no freaking way i'm gonna learn french I do not have that gene. I do not. I do not have that gene, right? So my dad had been a Marine. I had a much older cousin had been a Marine in Vietnam. You know, I grew up with, you know, my generation, a clear distinction of each service. Mm -hmm. You know, my wife hates this, but I always joke. You know what their secret recruiting slogan of the Army is? The Army, when your mom will let you join the Marines. <laughs> Because Marines hear all the time from people that have never been in the service. Or I hate to say it, guys that have been in the Army going, oh, and even my, my wife, when we first met, she said, you know, I almost joined the Marines. I was working on the Marine recruit. <laughs> but they couldn't guarantee me an MOS. And, uh, and you know what I'm talking about. It's no, like, no, no, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Marines hear it all the time. It's like, sure. oh, I almost joined the right. Marines. Everybody almost joined the Marines, yeah. Everybody almost yeah. joined the Marines. But so I said, you know, what's the next best thing? You know, if you really want to have something short of a, of a prefrontal lobotomy, you know, who will do that? And so my generation was, it's the Marines. You know, Paris Island is just like, it's like there's Devil's Island that the French send their prisoners to. Yeah. And then there's there's Paris Island. And it's this legendary mythic place that you're going to go to. Time will suspend itself. <laughs> you will come out of there utterly transformed. That's the big selling point of the Marine Corps. Okay. And yeah. so... But Vietnam wasn't weighing in your mind, like the fact Not that, at all. like that post-Vietnam lull and the dip and enthusiasm for the military, that didn't hit with you. Okay. No, no, no. But it it, it sort of plays a part in my story. So okay. now, join the Marines, go to Paris Island, 
my mind is immediately blown, you know, because it's not the boot camp my dad went through in 1938, you know. In what way? Better, worse, well, tougher? Worse in terms of the head shaving and the okay. harassment and the craziness. I mean, the, it was worse than the 1930s. I figured oh, in the 1930s absolutely. they were oh, yeah, barbarians. Yeah, yeah. No, no, okay. No, oh, wow. No, no, no. All right. Much. Because my drill instructors were all Vietnam vets, and they were still, summer of 75, they were still training us to fight Luke the Gook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, yeah we were yeah. still laying in bed saying, goodnight, chesty puller, and kill communists. <laughs> you know, so, you know, it was still okay. very much that that was what was going on. And wait, just one more sidebar before you continue yeah. on. Why didn't your, why did your dad talk you out of it? Did he think because it's you or because it's the Marine Corps? What did he have a problem with? Probably both. Okay. He just it, thought it wasn't like, a good mix. Is, well, okay. it's probably the final nail in the coffin. He's in the, what's Michael doing? He's in the Marines. What? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and I think part of me was like, I, I knew, I mean, I had friends that when they found out I went in the Marines, they were like, buy a lottery ticket or get ready for Armageddon because this is, doesn't, this is like, yeah. Who? Yeah. Okay. You know, who, what? Faye went in the Marines? Are you freaking kidding me? Cognitive dissonance. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and, yeah. and part of me wanted that drama, believe me. Yeah. I was thinking, I mean, I made the decision drunk and went to the recruiter the next day hungover. Only the Irish are capable of that thought process. <laughs> Is she still in your mind? Oh, absolutely. This whole time, right? Yeah. So following a great She's still legacy. In my mind today. Some, some yeah, things yeah. get wired into you. You know, yeah. it's just like, yep. um, you know, I mean, what she did. Essentially, she said, I, I I, fell out of like with you. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And anybody's been in a long-term relationship, that's what matters. Because you're going to fall out of quote-unquote love. Right. Biology makes that freaking easy as hell. Right, right. But like, which means we're going to, you know, ebb and flow is a whole nother thing. Whole nother thing. I mean, I'm very married to a combat vet, has as much trigger time as I have. Mm -hmm. And if she was here, I'd say, Janice, what are the two things you and I share? She goes... Well, we both love Michael and meds. <laughs> That's our little shtick. That's funny. And so, um, so I went into Marines, and uh, you know, I was sober through boot camp, obviously. And I, I got caught by the drill instructors doing sketches of them, caricatures. I still we have what's called the Little Red Monster, which is this little ES essential subjects book. Okay. That it was. It was. It, it was we called it little red monster it had this like red cover had notebook paper in it and and you know all the stats about you know m16 oh right right and, yeah and how to dig a fire hole yeah. and use a grenade etc basic map reading and you'd fold it up and you'd be able to get it in your back pocket right you know so i'm doing caricatures of the drill instructors which are basically like you know the campaign hat and a mouth with teeth you know and uh so they made me uh, sort of the, uh, you know, little Lance Corporal Van Gogh of the platoon. Yeah, yeah. So they'd have me do artwork. In particular, we have what we call a hogboard, which I'm sure they don't have anymore, but it was like, you know, this is the era of Polaroids. And the drone structures would tell the recruits, like, you got a good-looking mom, sister, girlfriend, cousin, whatever. We want to see photos, Polaroids, if you catch our drift. And so each platoon in a series, or a company, we call them series, the drills would have like a competition of the hog board. So I would decorate the, you know, the, the border of it. Was it naturalism or realism? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> but, um, um, and then we also, the other big thing was when you go to the rifle range, mm -hmm. you get a range flag. So you got your regular guide on that has your, it's right. red and gold with your platoon numbers on right. it. Right. And then 
But when you go to the range, you get to have another flag with artwork on it. So I did that. Okay. So that was my first time the Marine Corps said, you got talent, we're going to use it. We're going to torture you for it, but we're going to use it. So we're talking Jungian paradox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of opposites. Right? Yeah. So then I went to infantry training. I, I joined the Marines to be, I was a guaranteed infantry grunt. Okay. Um, figured if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And I, I have, you know, super high ASVAB scores. Yeah. You know, 98th percentile, 143 right. GT. Yeah. Wow. The girl's like going, you can do anything. I want to be a guaranteed grunt, you know. And so. Uh, because the drama. Because the drama, buddy. Yeah, you're there for well, it. Well, yeah, French, yeah. you know, if there's, I'm, I'm, I'm going to freaking do it. Yeah. I'm going to do yeah, this, yeah. you know, that, yeah. that, you know, I mean, I'm still an adolescent. <laughs> right. Right. I, I mean, I only even have to shave every day. You know? <laughs> right. I finally got chest hair at 70. It's like, it doesn't do any good at the beach. So, um, uh, I went to my first duty station. Uh, everybody around me was getting orders to Okinawa. Okay. You know, so their orders all, because they, they bring you out there, hand out, here's your orders, here's your orders. Right. You've right, got right. it stapled together. Right. And they tell you, you know, to, from, subject, right. all the particulars, like, what are, all, what are we looking at? Because yeah. after boot camp, they'd go, here's a plane ticket. Right. You better show up, Camp Pendleton, wherever, right. on this date, or we're going to hunt you down and kill you. Right, right. Aye, right. aye, sir. <laughs> um, so now you're getting your first permanent right. duty station orders. So everybody around me is like, report to CG, which is Commanding General, 3rd mm. Mar Div, 3rd Marine Division, Camp Schmedley Butler, Okinawa. Mine say report to CO, MB, McAllister, OK. So I call over the staff sergeant and I go, where is this on Okinawa? Because I'm thinking maybe it's a specialty place. He goes, ha, 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 ha. He goes, no. I remember him saying, no, you're going to the land of tumbleweeds. You're going to the Marine Barracks, McAllister, Oklahoma, Naval Ammunition Depot. What? Here I am, all this drama, going to see the world. I'm going to going Oklahoma. To, oh, fucking Oklahoma. Not only going to Oklahoma, but I'm going to Pittsburgh County which is a dry county <laughs> to a, to a, a base of 70,000 acres <clears throat> of ammunition igloos and mountain lions and herds of deer that they brought out of Vietnam. So they wouldn't be extinguished by agent orange or whatever. Crazy. Just like, wow. Weirdly beautiful. But it's like, what? The? <clears throat> and, and having had a little bit of college, of course, my first thing I, I, I remember thinking to myself was, the best laid plans of mice and yeah. men off go Gangalay. <laughs> you know, some Robert Burns. It's like, right. wow. Right. Best thing that ever happened <clears throat> because I went there, it was a dry county, but we had the Tahiti Club. All the staff and SEALs and officers were Vietnam vets. There was so much drugs and alcohol. I thought I saw drugs and alcohol at Penn State dorms. Hadn't yeah. seen shite. Yeah. This is Uncle Sam's Marijuana Club. This is 1975. Yeah. All right. And so, um, and I'm on a guard company, which means d two days on, two days off. Mm. I mean, day on, day off, day on, day off. Then you have a three-day weekend on or a three-day weekend off. Okay. And so the days off, you just go down to the Tahiti Club and just start sucking down the double rum and cokes. Wow. You know, and wow. everybody's shooting pool, watching television. <clears throat> and I went downhill pretty quick. And so- uh, Drugs or no, just, just the drinking? Alcohol. I never, I was yeah. never getting to drugs. And so- uh, you know, when people go, God, you got, you got, why'd you stop drinking? I go, listen, if the Marine Corps tells you you have a drinking problem, <laughs> if you ask your average sailor, soldier, airman, what distinguishes Marines other than just being crass, loud <clears throat> attitude? 
Well, they're all drunks. Exactly. <laughs> you know, work hard, party hard. Yeah. If you go, yeah. if you manage to outdo, you know, yeah. them, yeah. they're going to go, uh, okay. And I was having some, some physical stuff as far okay. as what my body was doing. So um, the CEO, a guy named AJ, August J. Calamanos, was a major. He, uh, real strict guy, but he, he said, if you, you're going to work on this, I'll support you. If not, I'm going to bust it off in your freaking ass. Mm -hmm. So we were 17 miles from McAllister, Oklahoma, and he had the duty bus take me to AA meetings. So I started going to AA meetings and with Okies. People in Oklahoma, this is how fast they talk. So I slowed down pretty quick because my sponsor, a guy named Dale Adams, who I'm sure has gone on to his reward, he said, Mike, I'm sure what you have to say <clears throat> is very interesting, but you talk so fast, we have no idea what you're saying. Now, why am I sharing that with you? Well, I got sober, and I'm calling my parents because they don't know yet, and I'm talking to my mom and dad. <laughs> At this pace. <laughs> and they're like, what is wrong with you? What? What is wrong with you? Why are you talking so slow? <laughs> I'm not talking slow. They go, my God. But they discovered, once again, the CO that had art talent. So now I'm doing cartoons for the weekly base newsletter. You know, just funny stuff. I'm doing all the decorations for the Marine Corps birthday ball. You know, mm -hmm. doing all this stuff. So mm -hmm. they, uh, so the, and, and the ultimate irony I talk about is of all the people slash organizations on the planet Earth that enabled, encouraged, and made it possible for me to travel the world and be an artist yeah. and have exhibits was <clears throat> United States <laughs> goddamn Marine Corps. Hoorah. <laughs> You know, it's just, I mean, it's like, yeah. it's not, and so that's part of the, you know, because I've been interviewed before, people go, the Marines I know. and art? I go, well, you know, the Marine Corps, it's its its own, and as you know, being in the Army, my wife said, you know, we, the Marines are like, Oof, what is it, what, what are those guys, what the hell is going on over there? Yeah. You know, and it's, and it's, and it is, it's, and people, I didn't make this up, they go, it's like a cult. Yeah. It's like a religion, yeah. it's this whole other thing. And as you know, there's always the meme out there. It's like, okay, if you were in the Air Force for six years and you get out, it takes about six days and completely wears off. <laughs> you know, if you were in yeah, the Navy and yeah. for six years, you get out, yeah, it takes <clears throat> about six weeks and it wears off. You're in the Army for six years, it takes for six years. It'll take about another six years for it to wear off before you go back to being somewhere near normal. You're in the Marines. It will never wear off. Yeah. You, yeah. you will. That it's yeah. done. It, they have genetically altered you. But there is that. I mean, talk about the the, the Jungian phrase it was the tension of opposites. Yeah. Party hard, but also they really lionize their marine experience, and that depreciation of art well, and the, is and, exceptional. And and I would say it's not. And this isn't unique to the Marines because my you know my wife's a unique individual. You obviously are. You know, I've known people who've been in the Army and the Air Force and stuff. Sure. But the thing people do not expect, and I did not expect from yeah. the Marines in particular, is that, and so it's no, it's it's no mystery to me, anyways, why so many um, Fortune 500 founders mm. and CEOs are former jarheads, 
and why there is just a who's who's list of, of actors yeah. Yeah. who were former Marines. And so what is it? The Marine Corps thrives on you being your authentic self, being crazy. You know, yes, you might stand in formation, spit shine, but it's like the C, your staff NCOs, they got to, they, they don't want to, because having been a staff NCO <clears throat> and a warrant officer, it's like, yeah, I, so, this kid is so entertaining. He's such a knucklehead. Yeah. And so they yeah. really encourage you up to a point to really be unique and crazy because it's the barracks stories. The yeah. Crazy, yeah. 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 As you know, with the Marines, the cr- you see stuff on the internet. Yeah. The crazy perverted <clears throat> borderline homoerotic crap <laughs> yeah, that right. Marines do. Because right. they're just like, hey, we're Marines. This is what we do. But it's like when you're so highly disciplined and some would say, therefore, repressed, yeah. you're going to have to blow it out a, a, on the other end point. of the spectrum and you're going to get that individuality right. and, and, really and, and in a high sort of degree. the thing while you're here with the combat art, the thing people get blown away with the Marine Corps combat art collection, because if they don't see it, what do they expect? Well, they expect propaganda yeah they they expect right. and and the art that's in the marine corps collection that came from recruiting posters was done by professional like jc yeah. lyondecker so these guys were never in the service yeah the body of the collection which is like 10 11, <clears> I'm 12, <throat> i don't know how many pieces now is professors come and they go oh my god the psychological they like to use that word mm. the compelling psychological stuff that's here is wild because Marines were told, and there's a show right now at the Marine Corps Museum covering 80 years of Marine Corps combat art. The official period started in 1942 to 2022. And the orders that were given in 1942 by a General Denig, Brigadier General Denig, and the orders that I got simply said, go to war, do art. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I could not do was enemy dead and enemy POWs. Now, a friend of mine, Steve Mumford, did a thing of enemy POWs with sandbags over their heads. I started to do a piece like that, and I had my camera confiscated, my film, because S two intelligence officer, yeah. lieutenant, yeah, yeah. Said, what are you doing here, staff sergeant? <clears throat> well, you know, I was in on Nazaria. I got well. They got a mm. bunch of guys. You can't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Geneva yeah. Convention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So civilian artists could do it, but I could not. Interesting. All right. So um, other than that, style, technique, subject matter, it was all up to me, because. That's what they wanted. They wanted this very personal, yep. naturalistic yep. view. And, uh, you know, the Marine Corps did a study, I think it was General Cushman, like back in the 50s. And the Marine Corps, because the Marine Corps always had to deal with a thing with, like the last president that really tried to get rid of the Marine Corps was Truman. And uh, the Marine Corps League just like shut him down. Right. And, uh, um, was, uh, you know, why is there a Marine Corps? Yeah, right, right. Really, seriously, because I had an uncle that went ashore on D-Day. Um, Army sure did a damn fine job, you know, North Africa, Anzio, mm-hmm. yep. you know, yep. Normandy, you know, they yep. went ashore, whatever. Yeah. So, you know, the unique amphibious capability. I mean, of course, Marines trained, there was Marines who trained the right. Army and on, on, you know, Assault from the yeah. sea, but Infamous soldiers, soldiers yeah. big, you know, died just as well as we did. <clears throat> but they found it's like America does not need a Marine Corps. America wants a Marine Corps. Mm. So mm. there were many things that were then devoted to, to that. You know, I mean, 
you know, I used to say to my wife, because, you know, you know that on your wedding, when we were getting married, because on your wedding day, you're going to be like, compared to other women, fully accessorized. She goes, what do you mean? I go, well, you're going to be in a white dress. You know, you're going to have flowers and you're going to have a marine in full dress blues on your arm. There's no point past that. <laughs> you're no point past that. You know? Yeah. And she laughed. She goes, mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, yeah. And so... Um, so the Marine Corps sort of tried to carve out, and I think effectively, this niche of, of attempting excellence in all that it does. So whether it's, you know, whether it's uh, sports, drill, <coughs> you know, uh, rifle range, uh, uh, you know, music, yeah, uh, all those things, you know, they want people, when you think of military music, oh, President's Home. Right. Commandant zone. Right. I hate to say it, silent drill teams. The Marine silent drill team. Right. You know, all right. the services have a, have, right. have a version of that. Right. They all look sharp. They all have different routines, but they go, you know, the Marine routine is very simple and spartan. Yeah. You know, they yeah. don't do like a lot of some other services do kind yeah. of some stuff that you expect, like maybe, you know, the Chinese military to do something right. fancy schmancy, right. like, woohoo, right. look at us. Right. And so, um, and the same in a small way was with the combat art. And the way they did that, tension of opposites, Jungian was like, okay, we're going to just find people that are, we think are talented and set them loose. You know? So what got yeah. me the job, because you would ask yeah. me this question, Chris, way right. back. Right. As a frustrated <clears throat> artist, I always found something to do creatively. I was with the President's Helicopter Squadron from 84 to 88. During that time... I got very well known making rustic hickory twig furniture. Like the one here. Right. right. Yeah. Got in magazines, was recognized wow. by the, uh, the National Trust for Historic Restoration as a National Trust artisan. And I always did a little artwork on the side. So this is an infantryman. You're making this no, furniture. No, now I'm, I'm, I'm working on helicopters. Oh, you're, so it's, it's helicopter maintenance, basically? Is that what it is? Or is it Yeah, I was avionics. Detail? Okay, avionics. Avionics, okay. yeah, right. yeah. Um, that's another story. Because when I was at the, when I got sober at the Marine Barracks, the CO needed, because it was a small unit, and it was going to be closed down and given to the Army. Now I think it's called an Army Ammunition, Army ammunition Plant. Um, Marine Corps wouldn't send any new bodies. So there was an exchange and a commissary there. They needed a bookkeeper. Okay accountant to, yeah. to keep the books yeah because there was no computers then other than your little <clears throat> calculator yeah right and uh the co colonel Calamon, i mean major calamos calls me and he goes you know and i'm looking at my friend corporal dry is sitting there and he was a kiowa indian and uh from oklahoma and he goes corporal dry wants an early out to go back to college he goes you he's got three weeks if you want for him to teach you accounting for a Marine Corps exchange and a commissary because it was one was called appropriated funds and one was not appropriated. So okay. two separate yeah. books. Mm -hmm. They were both in the same building, but you had to keep two separate books. And, uh, I was like so happy to get off <clears throat> being on guard duty, driving 1965 Plymouth pickup trucks with three on the column oh, and, man. And, and governors. So we can only do 45 miles an hour. <gasps> I was like, yeah. And dry's like, going, I will teach you will learn. And I did. So now I'm a double entry wow. analog bookkeeper. And they gave me that MOS. So now I went from being an 0341, which is an 81 millimeter mortar, which I never did because they sent me to this barracks, to being a 4111 Marine Corps Exchange accountant slash bookkeeper, double entry. And then you know, I already decided to go out, get out. 
main, one of the reasons was, uh, and I got out for a little bit to finish my degree, <clears throat> the, uh, my MOS was eliminated by new cash registers. Because huh. point of sale took care of yeah, everything. Yeah, right. Right. Added it to inventory, <laughs> took it out of inventory. You know, so it's like it's your obsolete. So in 1978, right. I'm obsolete AI. You know, I was you know the first we were eliminated. So now I got out, and then I decided to come back in, and uh, I was too old to be an officer. It was '82. It was when the last uh, uh, recession was. Right. There were no jobs. Right. right. No teaching jobs. It's like what am I gonna do? Um, and they looked at my scores and said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know, what do you got? They go, would you like to work on aircraft? And okay, like, yeah. I was like, oh, I've never done anything like that, but what the heck? And I loved it. So I went. But that is interesting because you now had the option. You had the uh, the fork in the road where you could have just bailed altogether and tried to do civilian art, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you could have you gone to the Lower East Side and yeah, but gone I was, with Basquiat I was, I was, and tried to do that whole that thing. Not that it's an excuse, but an explanation is like, I was still married to my first wife then. Okay. And she was like, no, 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 no. Going back okay. to the Marine Corps. It was okay for if I wanted to, you know, teach art. But and she had her father had been uh, she was a Canadian and her father had been in the Canadian Air Force. So me going back in the okay. Marine Corps was like not you know, she wasn't like it wasn't oh, a big deal. No. Okay. All right. Um just as an aside, I met my first wife in the Père Lachaise Cemetery looking for Jim Morrison's grave. <laughs> It's a good trivia point. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I had uh, gotten out of the Marines for a couple, two years, three years, and I was going back to Penn State. They made me start from scratch. <clears throat> oh wow! Because I left there with like a one point eight GPA, and uh, I was so insulted. I was a sergeant in the Marine Corps. <laughs> they go, well, it doesn't matter. You still got to start at a branch campus. Um, wow! And then uh, so I had a good friend who had stayed in the Marines. He was an embassy guard in Paris, so he knew my love of art. He said, well, you know, why don't you come over? You can stay, probably can't do that now, but he said, you can stay here at the Marine House in Paris. So I got a round-trip ticket. It was called Laker Airlines, a guy named Freddie Laker. $315 round-trip to Gatwick Airport outside of London. Yeah. Get on the different trains and stuff and yeah. end up in Paris. So, um, And my friend had duty one day. He says, well, I know you were like, you know, a big Jim Morrison fan. You know, and, and let me tell you, back up in high school, yeah. you know, there were like different groups as far as the music. Like, there were right. the people who liked the Rolling Stones. right. And, and Ozzy Osbourne, you know, the really hard, you know, mm -hmm. stuff. And then there were the people that like, were like the Beatles, you know, mm -hmm. they liked the Beatles and that sort of more poppy stuff. Mm -hmm. And then there were the arts and fartsy people. Yeah. Like we were the ones that listened to King Crimson. Yeah. Emerson Lake and yeah. Palmer. Uh, the Moody Blues, you know, the philosophical, oh, I'm in search of the lost chord. <laughs> you know? Were you into Yes. Did you like yes? No, I did not like okay. yes. I still wanted to understand the lyrics. <laughs> I don't want to hear about marmots falling out of the sky. I have, I have no idea what that is. Sorry, sorry, sorry. And of course, you know, this and, and Led Zeppelin, you know, some Led Zeppelin stuff. Sure, sure. I can still remember 1971, first time hearing Stairway to Heaven in a dorm and everybody losing their freaking minds with the ba da da. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh! yeah, yeah. In fact, there was just as an aside, uh, there was a, a guy, does, I don't think he's alive anymore, but he on NPR it was called the Shickley Mix. Okay. Professor Shickley. And he would do like exposés on different music. Yeah. And uh, you might edit this out, but he did it one time. He, one of his things was called orgasm music. <laughs> right? And one uh, of the things he talked about was stairway the to guitar heaven. Chord. And yeah. sort of build up yeah. and then like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like. That's a great idea. It's a know, great, yeah, concept like, for sure. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. And so uh, she didn't have a problem, but it was like, you know, to do art full time. But yeah. I was doing the furniture on the, the side and yeah. uh, 
it got it got pretty big. I was had I had uh, interior designers and decorators up and down from from Richmond up to up to New wow. York City. Wow, including I mean I did big twig displays for like department stores like Wanamakers and Gimbals. Okay, and, yeah, all, yeah, and all you know. Wow, all that kind of thing. So. Um, and how'd you feel about it? I mean, did you feel conflicted? Were you like, I could no, do I so much like, more if I was I, out? What or? it was, was uh, is, is in 1982, there was a magazine called Metropolitan Home and they did an article on rustic furniture and I saw it and I just, it just really, you know, there's the nature side, you know, there's the yeah. people side. Yep. And, uh, you know, I had worked at a summer camp and when I was younger, my parents, we'd go to a, a place up uh, Lake Winnipesaukee up in New mm. Hampshire. So yeah. that whole, I hadn't given it a name, but that sort of, mm. sort of cottagey, rustic thing yeah. was, I think, definitely wired into me. Mm. And so now I see this, like, oh my God, this furniture. I just went crazy. I taught myself how to make it, did tons of research, et cetera. Um, and I got quite well known for it. And uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, but... Um, so I always did artistic things, but right. the thing where I, I got out of the Marine Corps again and actually resulted was I, when I went to Desert Storm, Desert Shield, I yeah. was with a, a, a Marine Medium Helicopter Squadron 365 out of New River Air Station. So HMM 365. Um, and... Uh, you know, we went over and we did Desert Storm, Desert Shield. We also did a, a short mission with in Somalia, right in the middle of everything that nobody mm -hmm. ever heard of, Operation Eastern Exit. And uh, I, I always took a sketchbook with me. So now I'm, I'm doing these little slice-of-life sketches. Okay. And then I started doing pen and ink drawings. Because one of the things was I was – I actually – because I went from Presence Helicopter Squadron, I went to recruiting, which left no time for anything – and then from recruiting to the war, uh, I was in North Carolina and there was no Hickory mm. coastal North Carolina uh, to make furniture with. Yeah. So, so you needed something else. So I started doing the yeah. fine arts on the side. And I started doing photographs, working with photographs and doing pen and ink stuff. And then I also, when I was at, at war, I was I was aware of that the Marine Corps had combat art. And I said, you oh, were, you know, I don't know if anybody's over here, but I'm with this this particular uh, 4th Marine Expeditionary Unit or 4th Mar uh, Marine Expeditionary Brigade, MEB. Let me just, I mean, I'm just going to do some sketches. Maybe the Marine Corps won it, not, you know. And it, so, so I, I, you know, I did a handful of stuff. And, uh, and then I also did some <clears throat> civilian stuff. So part of my story, Chris, is in 1993 in New River, North Carolina, the University of Wilmington, the University of North Carolina Wilmington, with some grant, I'm sure, through the state, sponsored a, an art competition at the local mall. And they had an amateur side and a professional side. So I'm thinking, I'm, you know, I'm an amateur. I don't make a living at this. Right. So I submitted three works, two pen and ink drawings and and one watercolor. Were they from the Marine Corps? Were they like military-based? No, no, no. They were just civilian. They were landscapes. Okay. So wow. this is this people wow. land. Because the stuff okay. I did for the Marine Corps, pencil sketches, was of people. Like I okay. did one sketch of Marine Force Reconnaissance Marines mm. aboard the USS Guam under red lights at night mm. waiting to go into – they were the first ones that went into Mogadishu. Gotcha. So they were just laying on the non-skid, you know, <clears throat> their T-shirts and their gear everywhere. And I just sat down and I sketched them and I did some other stuff. So, um, you know, it's a bit of a dichotomy. And so, um, you know, and I, once again, I'm, I think the connecting thing that you've brought out is it's the naturalism. It's just yeah. what am I experiencing and what resonates with me? Yeah. So now, um, 
I got these three pieces, right? So they have the competition, and I go over when it's they've they've had the judging, and uh, and remember, you know, part of the background of this is my current wife was like, you know, stay in the Marines. Yeah, she liked the the stability <clears throat> and the medical care mm-hmm. and stuff. Yep. And uh, so, because uh, she was not pressuring me to get out at all. And I was like, oh, gosh, because um, I was, uh, this is sort of, you would understand this, and people in the military understand this, I was like at a terminal rank, E6, because I was in an MOS that there was no promotion. Yeah, I yeah. picked up E6 meritoriously on recruiting duty, and I had found out that post-Desert Storm, Desert Shield, and you and coming back from Yugoslavia, that I, I was going to be basically the next seven and a half, eight years in the yeah. Corps as an E6. Wow. I was, I was wow. junior we call them monitors. You guys might call them detailers. <clears throat> I was junior on the lineal list. I was the yeah. most junior junior E6 out of like 100 guys. So the 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 monitor said, you know, you just the chances of you picking up Gunny. And I had put in for avionics officer, warrant officer, four times. Was second on the Marine, on the wing, second Marine wing board. Uh, the guy that was, had the lieutenant colonel that had done the final interview, he said, oh, you're going to pick it up this time. You're going to pick it up this time. I didn't. And I'm like, what is my, you know, that combined with doing art, I'm like, what is my motivation? Right, right. I got a college degree. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be, you know, in the float cycle for another seven years. The marriage is already, mm." but back to this Wilmington, this university, UNC Wilmington show. So I go over to the mall to pick my artwork up. I see first place, second place, and honorable mention on my three pieces. And I'm picking them up, and the girl there goes, here, I have an envelope for you, because it had, there was money. I think it was like 250 bucks for first place. Now, professional side was 1500 I wish I had kept the letter, but it was the professor, art professor from UNC, who had done the judging. And he had a very nice note. He said, Mr. Fay, if you had put your art in the professional category, wow. you would be going home with a lot more money. And that was it. I just, I told my then wife, I go, that's it, I'm done. I'm going to get out, pursue doing the furniture and the art and creative stuff. Wow. And and I did, and up to her decision to sort of bail, um, I was, I had, I had a major contract with a, a major uh, uh, catalog company called The Plow and Hearth out of- uh, For the furniture. For the furniture. Wow. <clears throat> was designing up $25,000 worth of uh, conceptual art for a new uh, startup company called anthropology which is now real big wow um you know and uh so things and she just you know she wasn't having it yeah so 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 it was a not a good period but back so finally i had this little bit of artwork yeah no finished paintings a few watercolors sketch work from life and i'm living in fredericksburg virginia after the divorce because we lived outside of Fredericksburg, Spotsylvania County. So I retreated right. into the city, right. had a little apartment, had my artwork up on the walls. And uh, I'm walking downtown Fredericksburg, and I see this gallery slash antique shop. And I recognize the art in the window. And it was a woman named Donna Neary, Colonel Donna Neary. And she was the artist for the Marine Corps at the time. Gotcha. Um, but she was, a, you know, she's had a civilian career. Yeah, yeah. And she was, uh, her antique, she was an expert in uh, colonial era clothing. Wow. Wow. You know? Okay. Uh, 
I mean, people would call her up and say, "Yeah, we found some shoes under the under, <laughs> that pack rats had put under the you know." And she would tell them what <laughs> she just knew about that. She'd was her analyze thing. it. She was making a pretty good living by doing uh, <clears throat> portraits of battalion uh, commanding officers for the British Army because every every British battalion has its own unique character. Wow! So she's doing these portraits. And, uh, and that wasn't through the Marine Corps. That was no, no, like no. on her own. Okay, but for the wow. Marine Corps, she was also doing art. Wow. Right? Okay. And she's coming up on retirement. She's a full colonel. Wow. And I'm in there visiting with her with a beard, a mullet. I claim it wasn't a mullet. My daughter said, Dad, you had a mullet. <laughs> and an earring. Right? So I'm being the best damn civilian I could possibly be. You know, I've got out of the Marine Corps at age 40. <clears throat> the Marine Corps told me, you're too old to come back. Here's the deal. Because you, you won't be able to retire by age 47, right. 20 years. So you right. know that going out the door. Right. I said, I understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now it's like, so Donna goes, I, I happen to, you know, oh, by the way, I'm an artist and I was in the Marine. She goes, oh, that's interesting. I see your art sometime. I said, how about right now? She's like, well, I go, I'll be right back. So five blocks down, get the art off the wall, get my little sketchbooks. Why? Why did you want to show it to her that much? I just was like, it clicked. Because you were thinking of going back in or did you just yeah, want to be- Yeah, I thought, be- well, you know what? Let me see, you know, because now I'm, I'm basically- Thanks to my best friend, I'm un- I'm unencumbered. Gotcha. I'm a free agent again. So now, having gone, having tacked hard for art, you're now realizing your best avenue is back in the Marine Corps for art. Possibly, who knows? Okay. And yeah. did, uh, sorry, just to clarify, did the did the Marine Corps Combat Art Program take any of your sketches from oh, yeah, Mogadishu? Yeah. They did. Yeah, so yeah. they so they were tracking you. They had no 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 no. I had them. I just now it's like I. Okay, so now you're hunting. Now they, for they have them in the collection now. Oh, but not then. Not then. at the time. No, 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 okay, no, no, all right. No, 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 no. So, okay, so they still you were kind of unknown still to the oh, program. Oh yeah, they have no okay. idea. Yet. All right. So I, uh, um, <clears throat> I come back down with my stuff, and Donna's like, "Wow, oh, interesting, interesting." She goes, "Because uh, they were looking for somebody, and they hadn't been able to find anybody." Okay. Believe it or not, and she said, "Are you interested?" And I said, "Well, yeah." I go, "But I don't, you know, I'm I'm already like 46, going on 47." She goes, oh, don't worry about that. So she said, why don't you come up and meet the unit? So the unit that had the artists was what they call an IMA reserve detachment, mm-hmm. Individual Mobilization mm-hmm. Augmentee. Usually they're very specialized little yeah. think tank yeah. groups. And it was a unit of mostly historians and one artist in support of the Marine Corps historical. Uh, uh, it, it used to be at the Navy Yard. Marine okay. Corps historical, uh, I forget what they called it anymore, but. Um, division, history division. So I said, sure. So, you know, and I made a decision, like, you know, I'm not going to get, and I had stayed in good shape. I, I, okay. I had always worked out. Okay. I got, I had my uniforms. <laughs> I made sure I fit into them. I said, all right, you still fit. I'm good. <laughs> so, um, but I said, you know, I'm not going to shave. I'm not going to get a haircut. I'm not going to take the earring out. I'm just going to go up and see what this is all about. So I took my artwork up there and it was such a, it was all Lieutenant colonels and majors and, 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 a, and a couple colonels, very collegial. A couple of them were college professors. Okay. Uh, the head of the unit was a CIA <laughs> officer. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. God. There, he was a he was a, a jag in CIA. But anyway. Yeah. So like they saw the artwork and it was like that was they were like <clears throat> oh yeah like slice of life and stuff and it's like do you think you want to do this? I was like well yeah if you can make it happen. It took almost three year two years because they had to get all these different waivers. Three waivers they had to get. Staff NCO out over 24 hours, staff NCO out over a year, and the age waiver. You know, I had to go to prior service recruiters, do a PFT. Right. I got a nice mid-high 
first class, <clears throat> you know, all of this. Um, and this is know. all still pre-9-11, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, this is like 1997, okay. 98-ish. Okay. Because I, I swore back in, got the haircut, got out the university. Wow. And uh, uh, in January of, uh, of 2000, they said, you're all set. Go up to the wow. Navy Yard in Philly. I mean, in, in, in D.C., Anacostia. Yeah. And uh, somebody there is going to swear you back in. I was like, get the... I was like pinching myself. Wow. I go, this is unbelievable. So the first... And they only gave me a two-year contract. So the first two years, all I did was work on conceptual stuff for the new museum. What did that mean? Just they wanted... Yeah, they wanted like... If you ever get to the Marinko Museum, there's a lot of these uh, like two people <clears throat> together type displays. Like a World War One Marine fighting a German. Okay. All this stuff. So okay. I was basically doing conceptual illustration stuff for them. And was it from pictures or was it from your imagination or what was so it? I, I have to make up reference material and okay. stuff. All right. Um, you know, early in the computer age, you could find stuff. And then the mu museum, the historical division at that time had a, a library full of all kinds of reference okay. material. And they had the photo, cattle, you know, combat camera photographs from okay. the way back. So yeah. I was like, um, and then I also was helping the curator with the collection, you know. Okay keeping track of it, cleaning it, et cetera. So, so kind of I, administrative. Yeah, I was bit. kept busy. It was okay. very interesting. And, and and it was good because I got, became very aware of what was in the collection, okay. you know, of different artists and, and styles and stuff. Almost went to Kosovo, but they only had enough money to send a historian. So I got axed from that. Okay. Then 9-11 happened and everything changed. And now they had a war they needed to capture. Right. And so it happened on September 11th. As you know, our drill weekend was the next weekend. And I went in and the colonel said, all right, who's ready to go? And there were three of us were like two historians, younger guys and myself were like, he said, all right, come Monday, just show up, start getting your stuff together. He goes, we, we don't have orders for you yet, but you know, it's an, it's almost a new FY. So fiscal year. So especially for me as, yeah, as the only, yeah. only enlisted guy, E6, <clears throat> um, we've got lots of what they call drill points. Lots of money. So even though I wasn't getting, quote unquote, the benefits, I'm getting two days pay for every day I'm yep. showing up. Yep, right. So I'm essentially getting my base pay. I'm, right. I'm like, right. I've never had you know more money in my life. I was like, yeah, buddy. Right. Um, and uh, and how, how, sorry, how are you feeling at this point? Oh, I'm so psyched. I'm like, did you were going back to the range? Were you feeling up to par to go down range? Oh, yeah, yeah. I wasn't, I mean, you know, like I said, I'm 70. I was right. in my 40s. I was like, everybody thought I was in my, my early 30s. Sure, so sure, like, sure. But what about just your skill set? What about just shooting no, they, we, and just no, they started, operating we, we, in a combat? They've started doing all that stuff okay. to get us, you know, uh, <clears throat> qualify for deployment. You know, okay. We, we got to do, you know, vehicle rollover stuff. Right, and, right, right. They took us down to AP Hill and we did had a whole briefing on IEDs. And okay. then we had to do ambush training, like where you sat in the vehicle, where to get out, who's your battle bunny. So we had to get okay. there was a term for it and it's 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 <clears throat> like pre mob or something. Yeah, it was yeah. just you had to have all these checks in the box okay. before you could go. And then, how rigorous was it though? Because considering it was super rigorous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, because we're a bunch of, you know. We're just reservists, so we're like getting trained with a bunch of other reservists. But was there? I mean, because it was Afghanistan. Yeah, oh, yeah. And it's after nine eleven, so there's no footprint. We don't really know. That's a pretty exotic country to be going into oh, with yeah. no frame of reference. It was crazy. So I mean, was there any sense of like, okay, you're gonna be there with like 
Delta guys and SEALs and you got to know how to fit into them or anything? I have no idea. Okay. We're just like, I mean, I can tell you when I, when we flew into, into Kandahar, I mean, they were doing, it's, it's like mid November and we're doing combat roles and it's like that, that C-130 is dipping and diving and you're just sitting in the back under these blue lights, like what the, and you think you're going, yeah, because they're doing all this evasive stuff. Right. And then we get out and there's a few strings with chem lights and we're just tripping over gear everywhere because right, right. there was a thing called Task Force 58 was there. Um, and part of the <clears throat> Marine Corps Expeditionary Unit, that the combat unit was, uh, I think, 3-6, 3rd Battalion, 6 Marines. You know, so you have, you know, you're, it's it's dark. It's, you know, somebody's leading you and it's like yeah, you're of course. just tripping over. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was yeah. just so, it was great. Right. You know, and next thing you know, you're like out in the wilds of, flatlands of afghanistan on patrol and i'm like pinching myself like holy guacamole yeah and i thought i was out of the marine corps and that was it and part of the dynamic because i'm older is i got stop lost so you were in country yeah so i'm not i only had a two-year contract so i'm not getting discharged i'm stop lost oh got you okay so your contract just came how long were you in country well we were there from like mid-november and we left uh late april so we were and we were all over the place we were in pakistan wow you wow. know, we were in a couple places in Afghanistan, you know, uh, Kabul, Bagram. Yeah. Uh, you know, Bagram was probably the most interesting. That was really primitive. Um, what was into Kabul, you know? Went into Kabul when, <coughs> you know, uh, you know, I mean, all the trees were covered in kites. Yeah. Don't forget, you know, the, the weird potential, you know, that we all felt. And now, you know, we realize that, I hate to say it, some cultures is so broke, ain't, you can, you know, the whole neocon thing. We're going to bring democracy and that'll make the world a safer place because democratic nations are less yeah, likely right. to go to war. Great idea. That's like saying this whole generation of Gen Zs and millennials who don't want to work, don't want to have kids, don't really have religion. 73% of them are not quali- minimum, meet the minimum requirements for military service are going to save the world and are going to devote themselves to climate change. It's habits. true. It, it's true. But w- when was your last time in Afghanistan? When did you, when was last the last time I was time there was in May of, uh, 2010. I went as a civilian. Okay. All right. It changed. I will say, cause I left out in October, 2020 yeah. and to see a generation that had spent 20 years being raised yeah. under American protection. I will say the Afghan military was radically different. And we talked about it actually when, I, when Pineapple Express sure. was going on, we were getting people out in the withdrawal. Yeah. And it was funny. We talked about it in our community about the guys that had been there before 2013 and after 2013, the difference in cult, in the Afghan culture from the imp- the footprint we had had. And I got to say, I'm like, there was a lot of change. And like the people, the loathing of the Afghans from people that had been there before 2013. And then the rest of us that had been there after 2013 were like, what they they're there's no oh, that's that's not a thing anymore but there had been a big generational shift um that i saw with them yeah well we i was but it was there, a big mountain to climb yeah, there's we, no well, choice I, about I, it know, the, the, my quote unquote generation uh, you know the afghan soldiers were rather old yeah yes and yes. uh their cultural uh norms <laughs> with regards to yeah. sexual proclivities <laughs> Uh, i.e. Uh, Jiggy Jiggy Man Love Thursday and Bocce Paws was yeah. uh, probably resulted in a few, uh, you know... Uh, oh, you were there in the in the primitive years. Afghan, Absolutely. On, Afghan on 
coalition violence because yep. yep. I saw it. I mean, I saw, you know, out on patrol, especially in 2010, you know, the, you know, Marine corporals going up to Afghan soldiers going, you need to get your freak, you tell the interpreter, you need to tell Ahmed here to stop walking hand in hand with the little boys trying to get his date and keep his head in the game or I am going to butt fuck him with my yeah. rifle till he bleeds buttermilk. Yeah. And the, and the interpreter, like was a kid from California, like he was like, all right, right, right. you yeah. tell him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you yeah. know, I'm going to, I will, you know, yeah. and, then, and then one unit, I won't say what I, I went with them to there and there was, it was, it was, uh, had been like some big drug Lords compound. And there were like two big giant buildings that were really, you know, yeah. awful. Somebody thought they looked good. And the smaller of them was, you know, the Afghan one. And, I go up on the roof and the one guy goes, Hey, you want to see what those two guys are doing over there on my NVGs? I go, Do I want to? He goes, Not really. Not really. Oh my God. That was at Helmand? Was that Canada? Uh, out and out in the Southwest? Or were you it back was down in Gomser or not? Oh, yeah. It was, it was yeah, Gomser. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure, sure. Like, yeah. yeah, so that was a. And I could tell already, I mean, the Marines then were like getting like Vietnam Marines. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, I just want to get out of here alive. Yeah. And guys were sporting goatees and little, they were just, they were out there not getting relieved. They're an engine country. Mohawks. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Severe, not like high and tights. Right. You know. Right. Like the guy in like the movie Fury, the one guy with, you know, the Hispanic guy with the goatee. <laughs> right. This guy's like, I go, oh, big yeah. change of like, it's not like we're not going to change anything here other than maybe I'll get to kill a few guys yeah. and go home in one piece. Between your first deployment to Afghanistan and your last one, how many deployments did you have in between that? I mean, I went to Iraq twice. Okay. I went in 2003 and then 05 to 06. Did you feel like you had the appropriate amount of time <coughs> to not just decompress, but also artistically capture things and continue to kind of refresh yourself artistically to be able to go back into another combat zone and go, I, didn't, I got fresh eyes for this and I can no, take it all in? that thought process, uh, I, I never wanted to leave. Okay. No, I, I mean, I, I, I personally call uh, PTSD combat addiction syndrome. Mm. You know, it was mm. like, you know. Um, and, and one of the things when we were talking earlier yeah, that came up in conversation that, that I, I realized is the, the, the word home. Right? Yeah. So living here in Lebanon County, especially knowing how deep my mom's roots are here. Yeah. It feels like home. Or as my wife says, Michael's got dead relatives in every cemetery, and I do. My earliest ancestors in this area go back to 1640. Mm. Wow. With the last name McNeil. People wow. don't realize it wasn't so much, it was, you know, this was a colony of England. Yeah. So yeah. it wasn't really till, uh, you know, till uh, William Penn told all the German religious yeah. people they could come here. So you had a lot of Irish and Scotch and, uh, and, and the English were here. So, um, when I did my DNA, I, I found out that, yeah, on my dad's side, he that's 100% Irish. Wow. 100%. Wow. I got cousins on Ancestry whose aunt, my aunt or uncle, married a girl in the neighborhood. Yeah. Their pies, yeah. their genetic pie is green. <laughs> there are no other slices. There are no other slices. I think yeah. one's got 2% Welsh. Yeah. Other than that, it's like, but on my mom's side, it's extremely varied. And a lot of it has to do with, um, over here, um, Cornwall Furnace. Because Robert Coleman, uh, who was a protege of James Buchanan, huh. one of our worst presidents. Yeah. He was James Buchanan. James Buchanan was Robert Coleman's, excuse me, was Robert Coleman's uh, uh, attorney. 
And uh, so this Robert Coleman, Northern Irishman, bowed out a German who couldn't make these mines work and, and uh, had a whole bunch of mines. And he was America's first millionaire. He lived down in Lancaster. Wow. People always think Lancaster, Pennsylvania, that's German. <clears throat> no, Lancaster, it was a British bomber in World War right. II and is a city. Right. It's English. Right. It's yeah, not yeah, yeah. Pennsylvania Dutch. Even yeah. though people think of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Oh, no, that's where all the Germans right. lived now once. Right, right, right. Sorry, no. Um, I mean, the mines over here is Cornwall. Yeah. Gretna is Gaelic for Gravelly Hill. Right, right. The main streets down here is Rockerty Road. That's a Scottish surname. The township in Lancaster, right over the border, Raffo. That's a district in County Donegal. Mm. Down on 322, the main road you came in, you get down, you get to Londonderry and Campbelltown. Next, the next over Dauphin County, the next township over there is Derry Township. You know, so- Um, you couldn't have lived anywhere else, could you? Have? So I, you know, when you talked about in your genes, I mean, that's a, yeah. you know, without getting too new agey, I mean, they talk about, you know, things get passed genetically, you yeah. know, generational trauma, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I mean, the landscape here, which is, and there are people who, who study it, um, and and uh, to sort of diverge for a moment, um, in England they call them trackways. Okay, and. There's a guy named Tony Robinson who was uh, – there was a uh, hilarious English series called The Black Adder. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. Tony Robinson played uh, 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 the goofy little uh, sidekick. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, what was his name? Uh, not Chadwick, but uh, – Yeah, I'm not going to think of it. Anyway, but he, yeah. he, he was always nasty and smelly and stuff. Yeah. I think maybe he thought he was so typecast, he, he got into making these interesting documentaries. One's called Time Team. Okay. And the other is, I forget what it's called, but he, he goes on these trackways, which are the oldest English roads going way back you know, to the Stone Ages. Um, the oldest one is called the Icknield Way, right? And then there's, okay. uh, uh, they're all, you know, one of them was the main Roman road, north and south. And okay. But what is interesting to me is how they read the landscape. In what way? Just, just to look at the, the hedgerows and read the history, the, 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 the rises in the ground that are man-made. Yeah. You know, uh, just all kinds of stuff. Or how a road, you know, there must have been a farm here because it went down and zigged and went another way. And you see here, you come up here, the road. Yeah, yep. Like, why, yep. These, why does the landscape? So there's so much, I think, subliminal. So and I only just and, yeah, yeah, and the same yeah. is true in faces because one of the things I'm told I'm very good at is portraiture and really getting. I mean, you see these. This is yep. Kyle Carpenter images um, of just you know getting that person just yeah. you know um, is is the landscape of their face is so telling. There's so mm-hmm. much there, and I guess in and you've got me thinking about this, Chris. Is that for me, you know, the, the combat art, especially doing portraits and stuff, um, is is the in doing my landscapes is, you know, a portrait of a place, mm. you know? Um, yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, one of the things go back to Marine Corps combat art or good combat art, just not mine is we were never asked to distill ourselves out of the image. Right. Right. Cause people always say, um, and I didn't, I didn't come up with this. It was in an article that was written about me and a couple of other guys. Uh, I think it was in the, I would say the Washington post very early on. Okay. Was uh, they asked some professor? <clears throat> I'd have to find the article again. Like you know, why in the age of digital photography would you need right. analog artists? Right. You know, to to record. 
And this guy said, well, you know, photography is like prose. It does what it does. The art is like poetry. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it does. And, and the thing I think why people find combat art a bit more compelling goes all the way back to our ancient DNA. It's something about knowing that some other human being made that image. Yeah. There's something in our, yeah. in our, in our, in our synapse that, that give it a power that the most realistic photograph right. might overwhelm me with detail. Right. Whereas artwork <clears throat> is like, if art is, does what it should do um, and distills it down to its essence, you know, it has a, a certain aesthetic power that maybe a photo, it doesn't mean art photographs that are mind blowing, but um, can do things that, that, that a f- photograph, because I think when we see a photograph, we tend to think, oh, this come from a machine. There was an operator. Yeah, right, right. There's an operator right. that did, did a good job, you know. Yeah. You know, framed the shot, waited yeah. for it, yeah. got an asymmetric angle, did a good job developing it, but it's still sort of, you're thinking about the process and, the, mm-hmm. and the, you're, the, you're sort of very aware of the technology, which I think a photographer can, they can use to their benefit if they're very sure. creative. Yeah. You know, a pencil sketch, yeah. you know, um, being able to <clears> you know, edit things out. And it's hard to explain. And when, when I'm working on a drawing, it's just, I'm at this little area a little darker and it's like, then it starts to pop, you know, and you go, Ooh, that's working. I like what that's doing. I can't tell you exactly what it's doing, you know, but it's doing something. And then you get the feedback from viewers, um, you know, like one of these, I'm trying to think, which I think that's that sketch there Mm -hmm. was uh, a guy named Jonathan Jones from a big newspaper in England had come across a thing I'd written from the New York Times and saw it and just wrote the most wonderful review of that mm. sketch. You know, that this is yeah. like, this is what art should do. And I was like, oh, somebody I've never met, yeah. an ocean yeah. away, all he's got is the image. <clears throat> and he felt so compelled by it to write an article about it. Just about the image. It wasn't really about me. It's like, this is like, you know, so as an artist, it's like, yes, that's that's what it's all about, you know. I want to ask you about the home thing because to me, when you're saying, look, PTSD is really battle addiction, addiction to war. I have to believe that then there's an immense amount of therapeutic value and artistic value to decompress, deconstruct, unpack experiences when you're in a home base, a base that you feel inspired, safe, comfortable in your element again. Is that kind of what Pennsylvania and this area has meant to you because of the amount of time you spent downrange? Oh, sure. I mean, and, and, and I'm talking also for my wife who, uh, uh, you know, she was there and went over the berm in 03 with the army. Wow. And, uh, yeah. you know, she um, got IED'd in, uh, right outside the green zone and mm-hmm. she was driving and her interpreter sitting behind her had the back of her head blown off. You know, so she, yep. you know, she'd been there, done that. Yep. As she jokingly says, I took a rifle and Michael took crayons. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, I got to articulate things, you know, because when, when, when I teach art, mm-hmm. I teach a course called Reportage Art. Okay. And, and it's interesting that um, with the theme of home is um, one of the things I, I'll say to the students, you know, professors like to ask 
questions with the most obvious freaking answer just to watch students like just bounce all over the place. So mm-hmm. I say, you know, what does art do? So I'm going to ask you, Chris, you're a smart guy. Mm-hmm. What does art do? Explores, examines, no, and glorifies the human shut, condition. Sorry, sorry. sorry, sorry. <laughs> okay. Wah, 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 wah. Art articulates. It's the word. Art articulates. And it, you think about the word articulate, metaphor. I mean, like okay. when, when, a, when, a, when a joint is well articulated or disarticulated, out of joint. Yep. You know, all that yep. stuff. Yeah. You know, and so I think for a lot of, and I could speak for a lot of Marines I was in combat with, uh, which goes to a certain thing you sort of alluded to. One of the things about being a, a combat artist is, you know, you show up and you have permission to show up at a battalion. And the S3 officer or the, or the XO is looking at you like going, who the F are you? Why are you here to start eating my chow and filling up my shit? Right, right. You know, it's like, uh, you know, headquarters Marine Corps says, I need to send you out once. We'll see what the hell happens. And they're yeah, not like, yeah, yeah. like, right. you know, you're, I got to have an artist. <clears throat> I thought you were like a martial artist. <laughs> no, right. you're not here to teach McMap, Marine Corps <laughs> martial art. No, I'm here to draw. Right. What? Right. So, because if you're going in a Humvee, somebody else isn't. Right. Right. Because there's only five guys in it. Yep. One up, two up front, two in yep. the back, and one guy standing in the turret. So you got a battle buddy. You know, and Lance Corporal Bonatz is looking at you going, who's this old guy with a, with a nine mil? You know, so you go out on patrol and stuff happens and then word comes back. He goes, hey, he handled himself and, and uh, you know, we saw his sketches and this is kind of cool. And then you hang out with the unit and pretty soon you start hearing stuff because you're an older guy. You yeah, know? right. And the CO goes, you know, we're glad to have you. You're sort of like, you're like a chaplain. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're like this older guy doing something different and it's just, it's just good. Didn't could, didn't anticipate it. Can't quite yeah. put it into doctrine, but not a bad thing, you know. But I think what it's leading me up to saying is that I think the problem for especially combat vets, and it's like, and if you're a fobbit and you've lived on a fob and you've gone to the chow hall and you've hid from scud attack, whatever it is, you know, you develop these bonds and it's home. Mm-hmm. I'm good at this. I'm at home at my own skin. I'm with people that I trust. You know, I mean, uh, Sebastian Younger one time got interviewed by uh, Terry Gross. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, you know, he said, he said, war is men, heaven, utopia. Yeah. Other than the lack yeah. of women, yeah. men will never know the agape, the love of other men, yeah. the camaraderie, the sense of purpose. It, life is so simple. And it, I think part of what PTSD is, is you don't feel at home when you come home. Yeah. You know, I want to be back in my camis, crunching around on gravel, sitting in one of them toy fours, shitting in the blue water, mm-hmm. reading cockamamie shit on the wall. I remember reading one thing, and I, I got a buddy that I deployed with. He goes, Paco's mother, like, Paco's mother's pussy tastes like raisins and butterscotch pudding. <laughs> he and I would yeah. go, I yeah. always go, I, on, on, sometimes on Facebook, I go, Paco's mother's, he'll go, he'll finish vagina tastes like <laughs> butterscotch and raisins. But it's just that wacky shit. Yeah, yeah. And even, yeah. you know, he Sebastian Younger, who's deployed, was at yeah. that yeah. nine months on the top Corangal. of the freaking hill yeah. getting shot at. Yeah. You know, he became, they accepted him because he was like their little sensei, their little, you know, shaman, whatever it was, you know, that he was going to tell their story. Yeah. And it's, so it's like you come home and it's not really home. That's why when I, it's like, I'm going back, Yahoo Mountain Dew. 
I can't wait. I mean, literally cannot wait to get off the freaking bird on the tarmac in the dark, seeing the lights Yeah. on this, you know, ad hoc airfield step. It's like field of dreams. Yeah. As soon as I step off the, the hard top, I'm, the yeah. feel of the gravel, yeah. the smell of the diesel from the generators, you know, uh, the smell of the burn pits, you know, going into the, the late night chow hall, get myself a freaking bologna and cheese sandwich, yeah. you know, and some warm, cool, whatever. It's just like, this yeah. is home. And so I think here doing the landscapes, you know, this is home. I think that particularly for, for GIs, it's like, that's the dilemma. You know, who was the writer? Thomas Mann or somebody said, you can never go home. Right, right, right. You know, yeah. Uh, or, yeah. you know, Lao Tzu or somebody said, we can never step in the same river twice. I mean, all that sort of stuff. But I think that's the that's the thing. And so I do know that in terms of being an artist, that when guys go to the museum or whatever or, or contact me online, mm-hmm. it's like when they see the art, they go, yeah, that's, yeah. I want to ask you about this one thing that just cropped up. So as a support guy in a special operations group, I was always very neurotic about making sure – my skill set was not going to be was going to be value add, and that I wasn't going to be a negative, yeah, on the team because mm-hmm. it was a small unit. You're taking up somebody's chow and all right. that. When rounds started flying and all that, was it the training that kicked it? How were you? Do was that? How much of a concern was it for you to make sure you were tactically competent and a value add if rounds started popping off? Well, and how much did you work at it? And what's the balance like when you're also trying to be an artist? Well, I don't know if I you know work at it because I wasn't like, you know, I'm going like in the Marines, I'm going out to Mojave Viper, and and running around, you know, right. with the Ford element, you know, as as the right different rounds are changing and hitting, you know. Right. Although I've been to Mojave Viper, um, and went through that training. Um, you don't know till you're in combat for the first time, right? How you're going to be, and so once again, feeling at home. Uh, uh, I was grateful how I was. I was okay. Like, I, you know, the focus. You know, you only think about it later. You know, when it's like you know, it's it's you know, because I got a camera or something. It's like, you know, I got my rifle hanging. You know, so I'm taking pictures. I'm watching. You know, tr- you know, mm-hmm. and then shit starts to happen, and. People start, you know, bounding forward, taking turns. It's like, and you just like, get into the groove, you know. So I know that I've done that, you know, um, fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Not a flight guy. Maybe it might become a situation where I, I right, have, sure, sure, sure. But I, right. I can unapologetically say that when you know, um, I have two combat action ribbons that units made sure that I got because you were there when the shit happened. Yeah, you know. So that I don't know that, but, but well, I mean, did you? Tra- I mean, I guess because what amazes me is. Your preoccupation has to be on your art. Yeah. Well. So then, when I mean, when the rounds start flying, it's like okay. I mean, you have you were an infantryman. You know, you had training, yeah, yeah. but keeping keeping the skill set sharp so that you can respond in this kind of kinetic yeah. situation. I mean, how much of that was a concern? How much did it need to be a concern? I, for I you? really wasn't worried because I mean, I, you know, I like I said, through boot camp, infantry training, NCO schools where you do all this stuff. Um, you felt like you had it. You feel like you yeah, were Yeah, I really didn't. Okay. You know, I knew I was physically in good shape. Okay. It's more like, okay, you know, you're waiting for that that real baptism of fire. Not like, oh, they're shooting over there. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. No, they're shooting at us. Right, right. You know, what was that sound? Well, that's... <laughs> was, it, was that a 5.45 or a 7.62? <laughs> yeah. 
Right. You know, so it's, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, I've been wounded with shrapnel mm-hmm. uh, from an IED uh, in an in a, in a urban setting. Um, never got my Purple Heart. The first sergeant never submitted my my casualty, my, my uh, what they call individual casualty, whatever. I can still get it. I still know the people that were whatever, but be that as it may. So it's like. Let, let me know because we're right by the National Purple Heart Hall of Honor. Oh, yeah. Up by us. And every year they say, hey, do you know someone that should, deserves a Purple Heart and hasn't gotten one yet? And I'm always like, no, I don't know any Korean War vets. I mean, after that, they seem like yeah. they kind of track that. But I, I will absolutely keep that in mind if next time they ask because that would be pretty dope if you want to come up and get a Purple yeah, Heart at I mean, the Purple Heart Hall of Honor. You know, I got, it's, it's, I got you know, shrapnel up this arm. Um, we were out like in an urban setting, a place called uh, Ubedi. And uh, across the street, freaking, I, you know, was a, was a freaking, probably a big giant propane tank went off. Oh, wow. Blevy, yeah. And uh, I, uh, um, I remember, I, I didn't, I didn't feel it at first. And the corpsman and the staff sergeant I was with, that's platoon, I was with Fox Company, uh, First battalion, second marines, or second battalion, first marines, second battalion, first marines. Um, guy named uh, he retired as a marine gunner, uh, Mike Ventrone. He come running off, and goes, "Where were you hit? Where were you hit?" I go, and I, look, <laughs> and I see all his blood, and the corpsman's like, "You got hit!" And you know, he rolled up his sleeve, and you know, whatever. And uh, I wish I'd kept it to shrapnel. Eventually, fell out in the shower. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. they were pretty deep. Yeah. You know, so it was just yeah. kind of like these weird. But so. Um, I wasn't part of the unit, and they had a first sergeant nobody really liked. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, so, well, that's where it gets in this. And every, you know, he was supposed, yeah. to, you know, he was supposed to submit it, and the 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 uh, company commander, a guy who is now a full colonel named Ross, he had written it down in his little book. The company CO, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Bob Altman, uh, he wrote it down. He knew it. In yeah. Fact, Bob Altman was. I was at Quantico at the museum. Um. And he was there. He became the head of uh, uh, the security, like MP unit at Quantico. And he was there with his family. And he recognized. He goes, "Hey," because um, he knew me as a gunnery sergeant. Now I was at warrant officer. He goes, "Hey, Fag." Huh. And he was like, "Did you ever get your combat action?" I go, "No." He goes, "How about your Purple Heart?" And I was like, "You remember that?" He goes, "Yeah." Oh wow! I go, "No, never got." It. He goes, "I'll do a statement for you." So I got, I got statements from the platoon sergeant, the company commander. And the battalion CEO. We need to talk about that. But That'll be interesting. Yeah. The corpsman was a guy named Doc Hauser, and he was a loner from RCT2, Regimental Combat Team 2. He was a Navy reservist. He was on some special program where sailors could, but he's still in the Navy. He's, a, he's, a, he's, he's down in Texas. It took a long time to find him. And I finally, they actually, some of the guys in the unit said, Hey, we found Doc Hauser. Because after the operation was over, he went, Yeah. And all, all they ever knew was Doc Hauser. Yeah, right. And so he remembered. He says, I remember. Yeah, when you got hit. You know? uh, wow. So, I mean, it's just I got to pick up the thread. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I got yeah. all, I have all the, because I, I submitted the initial paperwork <clears throat> with all the statements. Yeah. And and photographs that I took of the wounds. And then. No, that's something we and should, then, and we then should I got stay a, in touch then with. And then I got yeah. a, you know, I got a message from the awards branch that said, oh, you need, you need another eyewitness. Somebody was right with you when it happened. Got you. I said, oh, all right, well, you know. And <laughs> right. then it's, you know, it's like other people, like th- that was in this Operation Steel Curtain. And a day later, like, you know. Right. Six guys right. were killed. Right. Right. It, was, right. it was just a real yeah. something. And, you know, I got, because this, the, the company commander, he remember because he's like, well, you're leaving. I go, I don't want to go. He goes, 
Well, he goes, yeah. He told Doug, you keep an eye, it gets infected or starts something. Yeah, right, 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 right. So, um, okay. Yeah. You know, a little bit of, this is, this is, um, I, I'm, I'm really pissed off because this, this deserves double the length that we've been able to talk at least, but let me give it short shrift and at least say right now, where are you at? What are you doing? What stuff should people know about? And how do you want, like, do you care if people are reaching out and trying to look at your work? Like, what are you, what's your main line of effort? What's your main focus right now? Well, my main focus is to do landscape painting. That's my, that's my dream. And also I'm working on a novel. I've been working on it for a long time. And it's called The Boy Who Drew Soldiers. Right. And uh, it's, it's a historical novel with all kinds of layers of like, just like me talking. And part of it is, uh, one of the, th- one of the things I experienced was when you draw people, Mm-hmm. You draw them in and you draw them out. That word, that metaphorical word. Because one of the things when I was overseas and I'm sitting out there with my little tripod, leather stool, guys start wandering over and looking over your shoulder and pushing. You got a little crowd and yeah. all the other artists have the same experience and they're drawn to you. And then other times you sit down one-on-one with somebody and you start drawing them and they start telling you about how their girlfriend cheated on them or is what yeah. their wife doing. And yeah. you start drawing them out. And so it's uh, it's set in World War One. Mm. There's a lot more to it. The other thing is also, you know, I said I teach a course called Reportage Art, yeah. and the whole idea of home. The interesting thing, the word "report," uh, you know, comes from Latin "re" r e portage, which means to bring back. You know, like when you portage a canoe. Mm-hmm. Or something. Yeah. Well, there is another word that comes exactly from the same root, "reportage." Rapport. Mm-hmm. And so you asked me what I like. It's like that that the art gives people a rapport they wouldn't normally have with war and warriors because there is yeah. nothing more stereotyped. Yeah. And you know as a veteran, yeah. Chris, what do veterans just cringe when people say to you? You're talking about thank you, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. Yeah. It's like you just you, I mean, people are well meaning. Yeah. Yeah. But it if there's anything that shows the divide between military service, in particular being in a combat zone yeah. and the civilian world, it's when they say thank you for your service. Because most of the guys, everybody I know, including my wife, it's like you just like I mean you go like, Oh, well, you know, you're welcome. But you don't know what to say. Yeah. yeah. You don't know what to say because it's like, what do you think you're thanking me for? Right. You know, what stereotype, what do you think? You know, because you know, with the Marine Corps in particular, it's like we're anti-intellectual, knuckle-dragging rock apes. Right, and right, right. love to eat, in particular, blue crowns. Um, but it's so much more than that. So how do you yeah, how yeah. do you get that, you know, you know, people see Full Metal Jacket umpteen times. How do you do that? And one of the things goes back in line with this, with the Marine Corps Combat Art Program, is that Marine Corps Combat Art Doctrine, or, or actually Civil Affairs, Public Affairs Doctrine, mm-hmm. they have a pub. And they have a mission statement right at the beginning. Like, what is public affairs meant to do? Unabashedly, two things. One, keep America aware of what its Marines are doing. Mm -hmm. Two, feed that ineffable relationship America has with Mm -hmm. its Marines. Mm -hmm. And 
that is a very poetic thing. Very poetic. Yeah. It's like, if, if, one, if you want to point to what is it that the Marine Corps does that the other branches, like, as you know, the Army, their, their latest recruiting. Yeah. Yeah. Has exploded in their face. Yeah. And their one last year with the freaking anime and oh, yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah, just yeah. did yeah. less than nothing. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Less than nothing. If the Army has made the mistake of, like, when I was a Marine recruiter, I'm at the end of the hallway. So the Army guys, there's six recruiters, one Army Reserve recruiter, and they're NCOIC. And then there's the Navy office, which is almost always empty, and me. <laughs> right. And they would, the Army guy was, the Army NCOIC, I think it was named, because his brother was a master sergeant at Headquarters Marine Corps, and they, they were twins, and they would go out to lunch together. And he would, he, he, his brother, the Marine, would come down and visit me, and then this the E7 would come down, and he'd poke his head in. And he would say, you know, Faye, if any of my recruiters said the stuff you say, we're all losing our careers and going to Leonardworth. Yeah, yeah. Because I would say to a kid, after I realized he was qualified, that he was what they call a, a, a you know a prospect. He was yeah. new work. Yeah, yeah. He was he was. I'm not going to be wasting my time. And I say this to you, Chris. What do Marines do? Kill. Kill people. Yeah. yeah. So you know that. And, and but we were trained to say that and look yeah. at the reaction. Yeah. To see their yeah. oh, I would have put you in the Marine Corps so fast, Chris. <laughs> oh my God. It would yeah. all over but the crying. Yeah. He said, if I did that, but I said, there's no sense going anywhere else because yeah. you know, they need to understand you're going into a culture yeah. Yeah. that you don't have to like it, but you gotta be willing to be trained if the time comes to do it. And we're gonna do that at a very deep level. And the Marine Corps boot camp is only meant to do two things. One, to make your bladder the size of a freaking base of a, of a basketball and to take away all yeah. flight impulses. Yeah. Flight is not an option. Yeah. You're going to stand there crawling in your own skin as a drill instructor is breathing fire and brimstone and, and spit and yesterday's lunch in your face. Yeah. And yeah. you're just going to take it. Even though inside you're going, I must flee. <laughs> Where's my mommy? Sweet yeah. Jesus, give me brain cancer. And then I'll go home and then you'll take it away. And I'll be safe. <laughs> right? So anyway, so that's, uh, you know, the idea is a home, rapport. Yeah, yeah. You know, what does art do? Um, all of that, uh, the Marine Corps said, that's that's something that we have a value. We don't have a lot of artists, but as you know, with, uh, you know, Captain Kennedy, mm. you know, and a couple of new guys that, that uh, as people, the Marine Corps itself got more aware. Yeah. Like me, they're out there. They're like, hey, I got this talent. I do it on the side. It's yeah. like, what do you mean I could do this as like yeah. sort of a... A serious gig, right? Right. There you go. All right. This is this is uh, no. Listen, th this is uh, such an injustice. We we to be continued. I'm telling you right now. Yeah. I'm going to come back down here. We're going to do a part two at some point because th uh, uh, there's so much more I want to know that we did not even get into. This has been a fucking pleasure, though. Thanks a million. Well, thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks for coming down. That was Mike Faye's profile in Havoc. Really enjoyed talking to him. I cannot wait for part two. Uh, stay tuned. That will be coming soon enough. Because we didn't even get to Mike's art. I mean, it just there's so much that we still have to talk about. And uh, I should say, I mean, just as a, as a kind of a rationale why we didn't talk about as much as we needed to. When I got down there, I said I was like hustling to try to get this interview in and have enough time to get make it back to New York to teach the class that night. And... Uh, <laughs> I said to Mike, I said, hey, but just before I start the interview, you know, any left or right limits to the conversation, anything you don't want me to ask about, don't want me to talk about. 
And Mike was like, yeah, yeah, there is this one thing. And I was like, okay. And he's like, and let me tell you about why I don't want to talk about it. And then he went into like a 20, 30-minute discussion of what it was that he didn't want to talk about on air. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm just getting crushed on time right now. But that's Mike. He's got a million stories, and they're all worth listening to. Not that one, because you guys will never hear it, but it was actually a really interesting story uh, that he told me, and I'm glad he did. Anyway, looking forward to part two, talking to Mike down the road. Okay, we start off this episode by thanking this episode's first sponsor, Second Mission Foundation. I now want to take a second and talk about this episode's other sponsor, which, of course, is Veterans Repertory Theater. As you guys know, this is my nonprofit, so um, I can go get a little long-winded on this. I'll try not to. For one thing, I don't have a ton of time to record this, <laughs> so kind of always push for time. But there's a bunch of things you should know that are going on. So first off, if you don't know about Veterans Repertory Theater, it is a tax-exempt nonprofit 501c3 organization which provides a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events. It's essentially three lines of effort. One is veteran playwrights and inserting veterans into the theater, American theater. Second is veterans in every other artistic media, especially that can be done live. And third is our classes and development. So we have acting classes, playwriting for veterans. Acting class open to anybody over 18 years old, but playwriting is only for veterans. Um, and that's our definition of veterans, which of course includes uh, military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence services, uh, uh, DOD contractors and employees, foreign service even, and immediate family members. So anyway, uh, we have playwriting classes for all of them. And, and that's both online and in person, I should say. And then, of course, that includes our parlor performances in New York where we develop audiences for theater and develop our acting cadre of phenomenal professional actors that we cast out of New York City. Some of whom can't, they certainly can be veterans. I don't think any of them have been yet, if I remember right. But we've definitely had some immediate family members that have been veterans. Uh, sorry, that have been actors on, the, on our stage, but not uh, no veterans Except myself. Anyway, be that as it may. Um, okay, a couple things you should know. First off, big news from Vet Rep. On April 14th, or from April 14th through April 16th. Actually, let me back up. Before I even get into that, we should do this in chronological order. First, oh man, we've got a bunch of stuff to talk about. I'm going to make this quick. April 13th, if you are in the greater Washington, D.C. area, do yourself a favor. Do us a favor. We would love to see you at the beautiful Principal Gallery in Old Town, Alexandria. As we return there for Savage Wonderground, Three Strangers, a brand new Savage Wonderground show that we are bringing to the Principal Gallery for one night only. It is an hour-long show. It's uh, the window we're giving ourselves between 6 and 8. The show will probably happen like 6.30-ish. But we have a grazing table. We have drinks. <clears throat> it is a badass show featuring, speaking of Marine combat artists, Christopher Battles, the Marine Corps, the current Marine Corps artist in residence, uh, Logan Vath, phenomenal singer-songwriter and Navy veteran, storyteller Charles McCaffrey, and former Marine Dex doing poetry and spoken word. So come check out the show. We would love to see you all there. Um, tickets can be gained at... SavageWonder.com. SavageWonder, all one word, dot com. SavageWonder.com to get your tickets for Savage Wonderground. That's April 13th. 
in in the D.C. area. April 14th, April 15th, and April 16th, we will be at Penguin Repertory Theater in Rockland County, New York, Stony Point, New York. Because our very first full-length playwriting competition winner, the play Brat, written by Army veteran Jason Pizzarello, will be getting its first public readings. It is a workshop reading that we are going to be doing with Brat at Penguin Rep. Now, that's all very well and cool. Brat is a two-person play, so obviously the actors that you have in the play are going to be pretty darn important. Who are the actors? Glad you asked. The play stars Edie Falco from The Sopranos, Nurse Jackie, Avatar. You know, she's done, you know who Edie Falco is. She will be playing the starring role in it, which is going to be badass. We have a great actor to play her son, Leonidas Ocampo. That's going to be a blast to watch them on stage, and it's being directed by Vet Rep's own Board of Advisor member, Bob Balaban, who, of course, is, you know, showbiz legend. And um, we're just incredibly grateful that we had got this package together, and we're incredibly grateful to our friends at Penguin Rep for uh, helping us co-produce this or co-producing this with us so we could do it in their space and, um, and yeah, it kind of feed off the infrastructure that they've built. So really, really grateful for this, but it's going to be four readings that are going to happen over the three-day period. So um, tickets for that, uh, you go to Penguin Rep's site. Um, if you don't know what that is, and I don't remember the exact address off the top of my head, but you can always go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. Look for our Now Playing tab, or you'll see right there on the homepage, there's options to go get tickets for it, and we'll just link you to the Penguin Rep site, and you can get tickets there. So there's that. Two huge things that we would love to see you all at. So whether you're in the greater New York City area or the greater D.C. area, come on out. Hang out with us. Uh, check out everything we have going on, vetrep.org or savagewonder.com. Okay. I need to thank our producer for this episode, Mike Neal. And on behalf of Mike Fay and the Havoc Journal team, I'm Christopher Palmeyer. We'll see you next time for another Profile in Havoc. <laughs>